Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that thought its mom was bad when she started watching Fox News. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the inhuman of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 2, Episodes 20 through 22. All right, Lonnie, so as you can imagine, we don't introduce a lot of new stuff here in basically the season finale right. of season two. <laughs> so there's not a lot of brand new four color facts to visit. Mm -hmm. However, since we had this very unexpected to me discovery that Jia Ying's power is actually evil as hell. Right. <laughs> I thought that I would talk about a couple of other famous psychic vampires Ooh. from the 616. I like it. So there are two that immediately jump to mind, and I like both of them very much, but I mm -hmm. like the second one even better than the other one, and you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna too. Now I feel like you're gonna like Celine a lot though. Okay, um, all right. Celine feels like one of these uh uh, you know, where if it's kind of like, well, I, you know, if they want to think I'm an awful evil woman just because I enjoy being in charge of things, then they can go ahead and do that. You know, because she's very much that person right. that is also an evil human being. So, mm -hmm. you know, or not quite a human being because mm -hmm. she's actually a mutant. You know, 616, we have we tend to go to the mutant well. Mm -hmm. MCU goes to the inhuman well when it goes to any wells at all. I right. guess. Selene is one of the oldest mutants in the world. She is actually very possibly the first mutant. Wow. Do mutants, are they like immortal? Do they live? No. Or is it just because she's a vampire? Yes. Oh, that is the okay. deal. All and right. the reason that there is some ambiguity is that she's got a lot of superpowers. And it's mm -hmm. kind of hard to tell which ones are mutant abilities and which are sorceress. Ooh. There's also the fact that Apocalypse is a much more popular X-Men villain, and he's been around since ancient Egypt, so he usually claims the title of okay. first and oldest mutant, uh -huh. which also seems like the right amount of patriarchal bullshit from Apocalypse, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, this go. is a guy who has been around for, you know, whatever, 7,000 years and was still like, hmm, survival of the fittest. That sounds about right. Let's declare uh -huh. war on the world, you know, so... <laughs> It's cool. You've been around all that time and all your best ideas came from 1850. Neat. Sure. <laughs> but ancient Egypt ain't nothing compared to the Hyborian Age, mm -hmm. the period 17,000 years ago when Selene was born. Wow. Now, genre fans may recognize the Hyborian Age as the prehistoric period when Conan tread jeweled thrones beneath his sandaled feet. <laughs> And somewhat less inside baseball listeners may recognize Conan. He's had a few movies and some TV shows. He is often known as Conan the Barbarian and is the most famous creation of pulp fantasy author Robert E. Howard. Mm -hmm. You see, for a while, Marvel owned the comic license for Conan. And so they set all kinds of stuff back between the ocean swallowing Atlantis and the rise of Arias. Mm-hmm. I really like Robert E. Howard, so I'm enjoying getting to read these Howardisms out loud on Mike. Oh, I'm just awesome. coming across. <laughs> 
Selene is one example of this let's just set stuff back in Conan times, and another is Kulin Gath, an immortal and evil sorcerer who lives in the Savage Land and tussles with Kazar and the X-Men on the reg. Mm-hmm. So you can see it kind of got wrapped up in X-Men stuff, and I think that's because Chris Claremont was writing a lot of the X-Men stuff at the time, and he was mm-hmm. also writing some of the Conan stuff and was probably just a Howard fan, and he was like, oh, can I play in that sandbox? Neat. Now, I have a question for you. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm really interested kind of in how the people, when they wrote this stuff, how it fits into the historical context, you know, culturally, when they were writing these things. So I'm kind of curious about the time frame for like, when was was Howard writing all of this stuff? And this was Pulp Fiction. This is an MCU, but it's just influenced by that same kind of um, that same kind of space. Is that? Yeah, this is this is one of my favorite things about superhero comics that they will borrow from anywhere and just yeah. integrate it. And that's the comics themselves, but it's also right. the genre, right? Sure. Um, the genre will fold everything in and sometimes things have to get blown a little bit more out of proportion or sometimes very rarely scaled down, mm-hmm. but everything fits eventually. I mean, we have at, uh, at DC, we have... Uh, Knights of King Arthur's Court who become superheroes during the 40s. You know, stuff like that. (laughs) Is it a fantasy story or a superhero story? It's a fantasy superhero story. Right. He also Mm -hmm. hangs out with, you know, science-based superhero stories because Mm -hmm. they're all still superheroes. So, yeah, you've got it right. Robert E. Howard was writing actual pulp fiction, as in four pulp magazines, which Mm -hmm. was the dominant entertainment medium alongside radio in the 30s. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's when Howard's writing a Conan, Cull, Cormac McCart, all of, all of his characters were kind of in that uh, 30s and 40s era. Mm-hmm. So Marvel becomes, uh, I wonder if I want to go down a Tolkien rabbit trail because people actually started caring about pulp fantasy fiction again because people started caring about Tolkien. I'm serious. No, tell me all the stuff. Because here's the thing. Like, I love the um, the whole context of how it all comes together. And also what I find fascinating about all of this is, you know, you're talking about how, like, you know, MCU stole from everything, right? Because they had to produce content. And when you have to produce a lot of content, not all of it is going to be great, but all of it is going to innovate. You're going to do something just because you're doing so much, you know? And I kind of love that both about the era, like the the pulp fiction, the magazines yes. that were coming out, that you're creating so much content that you don't worry about whether or not it's good or whether it makes sense, but you're doing new and interesting things. And all of the, you know, you get this incredible, like, you know, and I don't want to compare it to the, but the primordial ooze, right? You know, you have to have a lot of ooze in order to make really amazing things, you know? So for me, I look at all of this stuff in a cultural context of our, um, you know, of our culture as well, yes. like in that time and, and the things that were pulling us into it um, and like what we're creating and have the that like the volume of what was being created creates this this space where things can happen that wouldn't happen anywhere else where stories can be told that nobody else would ever tell because they take a minute and look at it and go, well, that's too crazy. Nothing's too crazy. You know, there's no lid on this pot. I love that. So you are absolutely right about the just prolific nature and how we didn't have to, we creators, I'm like collectively throwing myself right, right, in right. this, even though I'm mm-hmm. 80 years after the fact, but <laughs> th- we didn't have time to think about it. These men, mm-hmm. a lot of them were pay- being paid 
one or two cents a word for these stories. Mm -hmm. And some of them, this is, I really like this, this idea. Um, some of them couldn't even afford their own typewriters. I, I think it was oh Ray God. Bradbury. I'm pretty sure it was Ray Bradbury who would talk about the fact that he had to get incredibly fast and tight copy. He had to get good at a typewriter uh -huh. because he was renting one at the library. Oh my God. And so it's like a dime an hour, which means he's already <gasps> behind. Right, right. Yeah. He's already behind the minute that he starts typing. So, yeah. you know, at, at one or two cents a word, he had to be able to do a good story, you know, uh, uh -huh. on the first try without having to retype it for errors. Anyway, so you had these weird ideas of what people mm -hmm. needed, you know, and sometimes it was being odd, having a story that was weird was more important than having one that was good you right. know because mm -hmm. these are these are i mean they the pulps had a reputation for being for people of like low intelligence but that's you know like what we used to say about tv you know right and then, yes. no that's just what we say about mass media you know it's what we say about anything new because everybody freaks out about whatever the new form is as though form matters it doesn't it's all delivery mechanism for stories yes absolutely yeah. and in this mm -hmm. case because you had a whole shelf or a wall of lurid yeah. options. You know, uh -huh. you really had to get their attention with the cover and then hold them the entire way through. So they were serialized and they weird was better. Weird was yes. better than good. Okay. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Which, I mean, whoa, watch out. Here comes the, here's possibly comes the adding at Twitter. This explains the popularity of H.P. Lovecraft, who is otherwise not that great a writer, mm -hmm. but his stuff is weird as hell. Well, yeah, and that's interesting. And it that's the thing is like it sparks thoughts in people. You know, it sparks like ideas and and when we stop becoming um, you know, really precious about our creativity, that it has to be genius, all of it. That's what shuts people down. But when you've got this creative, like kind of soup constantly on the boil, not everything is gonna be genius, but there's gonna be genius in there. You know, and I mean, yes, that's definitely. what opens up this whole creative space. I mean, this is the whole reason why I wanted to do the MCU. Like as somebody who studies narrative, what better space to study than something like this? And you bringing in all this historical context of just the pure insanity, you know, <laughs> that came out of this stuff. It is amazing. I mean, people could do entire, you know, PhD dissertations on this stuff and it would be fascinating but everybody sees it as below because it's somehow like not good enough or whatever this is incredible and so like i just went and of course as soon as we mentioned the savage lands right right you're in which of course well i mean part of that is but part of it is also that it, it so creaks with the time at which it was told and what that says about our culture the fact that we use words like that and that we you know like i, I mean all these things that that were done were done in stories that were told back in that time which now we look at and we give it a severe and well-earned side eye but at the same time there's so much variety they did everything you know i mean just everything it spans all these different kinds of spaces it fuses genres which yes. is something that actually i think we've picked up all of our genres are fused now right it, nothing is pure a high mystery concept. Everything. everything yeah exactly because we found that you can tell a mystery and a romance at the same time or that you can tell an adventure and a horror at the same time that you can do all of these things at the same time and i think that that started by these people just having to like push out this stuff and not really think about it that much there is incredible value to that so anybody creative out there who's writing or working on anything just do it done is better than good 
Because when you just stop worrying about whether or not it's good, you're going to do the most interesting work. And this stuff, whatever it has and whatever, you know, like, you know, really like not woke cultural artifacts may be cramped in there. It's interesting stuff. It, it really is. There absolutely are people doing dissertations and theses on this stuff right now. And I there would really be. like to be one of them. So everybody <laughs> go ahead and send a note to Bowling Green State University to hurry up and get their pop cultural master's program done remotely so I can start it. Yes, absolutely. Everybody, mention me by name. I'm fine with it. Do it now. There may or may not be a link in the show notes. My co-host who is in academia may tell me that's a terrible idea. Okay. So, yes, I love all of this. Thank you for asking me historical context. So, pulp fantasy, which is so wildly different from what we now think of as fantasy by and large, okay? Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons for that is this is very popular in the 30s and 40s, okay? Mm -hmm. Because weird was better than good, you know? Um, We have a resurgence in the 60s, a resurgence in an interest in fantasy because a bunch of hippies discovered Tolkien. Uh-huh. Which is fine. I'm, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to move on from Tolkien from here, but that's not because there's a problem with Tolkien. It's just we're we're zeroing in on Celine eventually. Okay. Yeah. Tolkien's a whole other discussion. It's a whole other monster, man. <laughs> um, the whole mountains of monsters with yes. big eyes at the top. Okay. Uh, I know it was a tower, people. <laughs> there was a mountain and a tower. Just. <laughs> okay. So you have a whole bunch of hippies who rediscover fantasy for us culturally in Tolkien. And then you have a scramble for people to have fantasy content. Like that wasn't a thing that we needed for, Mm -hmm. you know, 20 or 30 years in there. And so then you started getting Conan uh, and Cole and Cormac repackaged and a bunch of other people too. But Robert E. Howard is one of the ones that really caught on and became Mm -hmm. a favorite. And Conan being kind of the top of that stack, uh, which is weird because he wrote more Conan stories, but I actually think Cormac McCart stories are better. I, you know, it's a whole thing. You never know what people are going to latch onto. Mm -hmm. So then you have Marvel comics come along. And for a while, Marvel comics was big into licenses. If they could get them relatively cheap, that's Mm -hmm. how they got the star Wars license. Like nobody wanted that in 1977. Marvel gets it for a song essentially, (laughs) and then makes a bunch of weird shit. Like just, Uh, that's a whole other. Conan was another one that they could get. They started publishing Savage Sword of Conan. Mm -hmm. And because it was now part of the warp and woof of their universe, right? Like Mm -hmm. Conan wasn't part of the Marvel universe, but now he was being published by Marvel. So people started to blur that line a little bit. Sure. Mm -hmm. And Kulengath and Selene are really good examples of this. Um, So, and we're going to talk about Selene specifically, right? That's, That's who brings us into this episode. But to show you that context that you're asking about at Marvel, Kulengath mm-hmm. actually originally shows up in the Savage Sword of Conan, not in a superhero book. Mm-hmm. Originally in, uh, oh, I'm sorry, he's actually originally in Conan the Barbarian, a, a different book. I liked Savage Sword of Conan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there were different ones. Okay. Yes. So he actually shows up in Conan the Barbarian 14 and 15 in 1972. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly when he made the leap into X-Men comics. It would be very late 70s, early 80s. Okay. Wow. Is when, when Claremont, Chris Claremont, who was the very famous um, X-Men writer, like made the X-Men the thing that we care about. Before mm -hmm. that, nobody cared. After Claremont, everybody cares. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so he brings Kulan Gath, I believe it was him, into the, the X-Men orbit via the Savage Land. Like I mentioned, they kept crashing their plane there like you'd think they'd learn. Right. So that's originally appearing in 1972. Somewhere between five and seven-ish years later, he shows up in X-Men comics. So mm -hmm. we have now established that the Hyborian Age <laughs> exists <laughs> in the same timeline as the X-Men. Uh-huh. Enter Selene. <laughs> who was actually created whole cloth by Chris Claremont mm -hmm. and Sal Basima in 1983. Wow. Because she's not an X-Men villain, technically. She's a new mutant villain. Mm -hmm. They're like a junior, junior varsity X-Men. Okay. All right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very similar concept to Kulan Gath, except he kind of just like stays in the Savage Land because his immortality is tied to that geographical area. And yeah. hers is, I will just suck the damn life out of you. <laughs> and so take a look at this, right? Like you are dealing with concepts from the 30s uh -huh. that were forgotten. I mean, were largely forgotten. I, I There's some nuance here, but just, you know, go, go mm -hmm. with me. They were largely forgotten until this resurgence of Tolkien's high fantasy. Mm -hmm. And then you get this, what was at the time called low fantasy in Howard also becoming popular because of Tolkien, like kind of just caught up right. in the wake, even though they could not be more different, you know? Mm -hmm. And then because Marvel's around, they're like just gobbling up licenses that they can get for next to nothing. Yeah. All of a sudden, this stuff that's at the time 50 or 60 years old and that was actually forgotten for 20 or 30 of those years mm -hmm. is now part of the superhero universe. And we're going to be stuck with it more or less forever. <laughs> I mean, because because superhero comics right. just don't throw things away, mm -hmm. you know, um, I believe that there's been an announcement of a Shang-Chi movie coming up, like a Kung Fu MCU movie. And wow. we're going to have that all over again, because for a while, it seemed like a good idea for Marvel to make Fu Manchu comics. Oh God. And Fu Manchu is Shang-Chi's dad. But then they lost the license. They can't talk about it. Right. Oh, mm -hmm. But enough, I believe enough of Howard stuff is now in the public domain in one way or another that they are able right. to keep the Hyborian side of things over. Right. Oh. So you've got this. Yeah. This big historical context. And it really is this like primordial ooze or this stew that just like. Yeah. Yeah. Or what's the I think sourdough bread as a concept is kind of gross. But I think <laughs> I think it. I mean, it's delicious to eat. But just if I think about it too hard, it's not a great idea. And that's kind of yeah. what I think about with. <laughs> These characters and these concepts, yeah. you know, like mm -hmm. we kept a part of this dough. It's basically rotten, but that's why it turns out so awesome. Right. And I think mm -hmm. that's a useful metaphor also for people who are worried about the cultural artifacts that are not great, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. is that, yes, absolutely. We should be aware those things, be aware of them. But at the same time, we get so much of our pop culture now, even before the MCU is a big deal. We get mm -hmm. so much of our pop culture from what do they call it? That starter dough, right? Yes. Which is right. frankly rotten. Okay. Yes. It's, it is not good, but then we make something good out of it. 
but it can also yeah but it also has like great things that can come from it and that's the thing is that it's not all it's not all or nothing it's not all yes. good it's not all bad it, you can't throw everything out you know I mean it's just it's very complicated and so uh, being able to appreciate the things that are genuinely interesting and crunchy within that space and being able to acknowledge and kind of set aside the, you know, the regrettable cultural artifacts that are in there as well, um, gives you the ability to really appreciate what they were doing while at the same time, like defanging the stuff that's that's actually actively abusive. Because the fact of the matter is, if you live in Western culture, you live in an abusive relationship. Like it is abusive to tons of people in various different ways. Yeah. Um, and being able to recognize that the problem was when we were gaslighting about it. The problem is when we're like, no, that's perfectly fine. Rubber stamp. That's fine. You know, um, that's where the real problem was. Now that we can look at it and we can kind of isolate those elements and say that's not OK and keep that separate from us so that we're not absorbing that and believing these things that are inherently untrue. Mm -hmm. We can also appreciate what these people did. You know, it was amazing. Actually, it's funny you mentioned Ray Bradbury because I actually have a quote by him that I, I put like, you know, uh, inspirational quotes on like my whiteboard and, and my my door at my office and at the university. I have a Ray Bradbury quote on my whiteboard that basically says, just create. Don't worry about whether it's good because that makes you self-conscious. Self-conscious is lousy. Just do the damn thing. Mm -hmm. Right. That is a paraphrase, but that's essentially what he's saying. <laughs> and I think that that's really an important way to look at creativity is to both value it and, and understand how precious a gift it is and also not get over into yourself about it you know yeah. like not get in your own head about it because that's where you're able to do all of this wild crazy stuff that kind of pushes creativity to these outer limits and yeah sometimes it's fun because it's ridiculous and we make fun of it but it also creates a space where you get something like the mcu which narratively as a as a whole unit you know is astounding to study Yes, and is frankly, I mean, this is not for I've been around forever elitist nonsense, but it mm -hmm. really is that astounding. And frankly, it is a yeah. drop in the bucket to the 6.6, yeah. you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, a, a, a dot compared mm -hmm. to just reams of paper, you know, and I yeah. and I love all that stuff. This is the fact that they cycled the fact that they folded all of this other stuff in to superhero mm -hmm. comics is one of the reasons that I know about that stuff at all. Yeah. And yeah. it's been a huge influence on me personally and creatively and the stuff that I mm -hmm. think about. And I also really think sometimes more by luck than by design, it's also a reason that I'm able to pull out the stuff that I don't want to make part of right. my work, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And then you can do that, you know, but you can still appreciate the rest of it. When you throw the baby out with the bathwater, um, you end up kind of like chopping off a limb <laughs> that could possibly be useful in some ways, you know, uh, which is a weird metaphor, but whatever. I'm just going off the cuff. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, I just and I think it's it's so interesting whenever you start going into these four color facts. It always lights up my brain when I think about when people were telling these stories and what was going on in the world and in their particular environment, you know, which which usually is America that would do some of this. Some of these writers were in England as well, I think. But um, we did have a British invasion around uh, the early 80s. 
Yeah. 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 But it's, it's really interesting when you think about what they're doing and how they're influenced by the culture in which they lived at that time, you know, and how that influences the, you know, the, the Western culture, American Western culture at this particular time frame, how that influenced the way that they talked about all these other things. And it is, it's interesting. You get, you know, take the poison out, you reject the premise that some of these things are okay. Cause it was very highly white supremacist, very highly patriarchal, oh, yeah. anti-Semitic. There's tons of that stuff in there because it was in the ground. It was in the culture from which this, you know, stuff sprang. That's the essential concept of terroir, right? Yeah. Um, but but at the same time, what they were doing was really interesting. And I would dare to say, because the means of this kind of mass production were not available until then, you know, unprecedented in human history, this kind of massive interconnected storytelling you know, I mean, that's when this started. That's the first time in human history we had this level of storytelling and, and world creation. And I, I, to me, honestly, I find it so fascinating and I know so little about it. So whenever you start talking about it, I get so excited. Like, this is honestly my favorite part of the, <laughs> as you can tell, my favorite part of the whole thing that we do together. But I love talking about the MCU and the stuff that we do and the, you know, storytelling of it. But just that you're, you're talking about this nascent time in this this new realm of storytelling and um, it's fascinating it, it and it never really went away that mm -hmm. that kind of that like primordial time never really went away as far as superhero comics were concerned yeah, like yeah. The, the idea that in 1982 we are introducing a character with ties to a world that was being written as trash throwaway fiction 70 years previous yeah you know is just it is it really is fascinating and i and i feel like uh hi dr kelly jones i feel like there's a tie as far as that means of cheap production and interested yeah. parties i feel like there's a tie between the wild creativity of pulp magazines in the 30s uh -huh. to Golden Age comics also in the 30s, to the Marvel Age in the 60s, through to fan fiction when the yes. internet really picks up. Yes. Like these, these moments in time tied to interest and a lowered bar of technology, I think result in wild creativity and it's super cool. And hey, Kelly, I think I just figured out my thesis. So buckle up for that if uh, Bowling Green ever gets their business together and lets me do this thing remotely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to finally bring it back to Celine. Yes. But that was beautiful. That's a no. symphony. But to bring it back to Celine. <laughs> yeah. She is effectively immortal by nature, apparently. That's apparently part of her mutant power. But she yeah. is not eternally young. Oh, that's got to suck. Well, it would, except she can maintain her youth and frankly superhuman levels of vigor by okay. sucking the life force from other people. Oh, God, that's tough. Yeah, well, not for her. She's evil as hell. She doesn't give okay. a damn. As long as she's evil. I mean, she <laughs> just doesn't she's care. she's evil and it doesn't give her any conflict internally or anything. Zero percent. No, so she's into okay. it. <laughs> we will get to a person who is a psychic vampire and has yeah. conflict. We're going to talk mm -hmm. about that fella here in a minute. But that's yeah. not Celine. She's just like, oh, I'm a little peckish. <laughs> Voop. <laughs> I really like being able to pick up a car. Come here, guy. Yeah. Voop. You know. <laughs> and I don't know when the phrase psychic vampire started to be used to describe her. It may yeah. have been in a piece of fiction before Celine existed, but mm -hmm. that's how they always talked about her. A person who could psionically suck the life force out of you. 
Wow. Is a psychic vampire. They're not eating your mind. They're using their right. mind to eat your life force. Okay. Wow. And that's kind of a main difference, I think, between Celine and Jia Ying, who apparently has to make physical contact. Yes. I think, I mean, I'm not sure it's biological with her per se, but mm -hmm. if it is psionic, you know, if it is part of her mind, she has to be in physical contact to you, you know. Yeah. Which brings me to our other altogether weirder psychic vampire. <laughs> Carl Lycos. Okay. So technically Lycos is a mutate, not a mutant. He was not born with his powers. He was bitten by a mutant pterodactyl. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it left Lycos with the ability to absorb and sustain himself on the life energies of living beings. Oh my God. Yeah, that's a tough road to hoe, honestly, yeah. like, because he is basically a good guy, you know? Yeah. Um, so here's your conflict there. Now, from what I understand, he could also sustain himself just normally, like he had a normal physiology also, but none mm -hmm. of that was as, like, enjoyable or as enervating as sucking the yeah. energy out of other people. Right. <laughs> but wait, there's more. You see... Uh -huh. Dr. Lycos accidentally absorbed the life energy of the X-Man Havoc, who is a mutant, mm -hmm. and a terrible transformation came over Carl. Oh my God. He became a humanoid pteranodon monster with a different personality, a nigh insatiable appetite for mutant life force, and a powerful hypnotic gaze. Oh my God. This pteranodon man took mm -hmm. the name Sauron after the villain in Lord of the Rings because once a nerd, <laughs> always a nerd, apparently. <laughs> and because it sounded like Saurus, uh -huh. the Latin for sure. lizard, right? Reptile. Sure. Sauron battled the X-Men. He declared himself a would-be conqueror. Mm -hmm. The X-Men defeated Sauron and thought that it had died, but it had actually been knocked unconscious, like off a cliff, and was unconscious long enough for the effects of the mutant life energies to wear off, and Sauron reverted back to Lycos. Okay. So now you have this kind of, uh, this conflict, this Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing, where Lycos is like, I really do need to kind of live off life energies, but if I do it too much or if i get the best possible one which in this case is a mutant's life energies mm -hmm. i will flip out like it's it's like the wolfman meets jekyll and hyde really yeah you know so to hide out lycos traveled to the savage land and he lived there because frankly it's too thematically perfect for him not to like i'm not oh, even certainly. sure it makes story sense Right. But how does that guy not go and live in the Savage Land? You know, certainly. Yeah. Now, my favorite bit of trivia about Sauron is that Neil Adams and Roy Thomas, the two men that mm -hmm. created him, originally planned for him to have a more bat like body rather than a pteranodon. Mm -hmm. At the time, though, superhero comics were very much beholden to the Comics Code Authority that was supposed to safeguard young minds from the horrors of superhero stories. And the uh -huh. code said no vampires. Oh. Now, the duo thought that their initial idea for Sauron would be too close for comfort. And so rather than chance it, they made him a dinosaur man instead. <laughs> of course. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so both of those I tie in because Jia Ying is apparently a, a psychic vampire and yeah. mm -hmm. is very unrepentant about it. So there's <laughs> Celine. You know, right. but how can I bring that up and not talk about Carl Lycos, the mm -hmm. man who would be Sauron? Great stuff. Yeah. I have a couple of honorable mentions, though. 
Mm-hmm. Because we see a few Inhumans with powers that I recognized in more established mutants, specifically some X-Men. Okay. So I kind of wanted mm-hmm. to call them out because they're fun. Nightcrawler. Mm-hmm. So I suspect that listeners to this show already know Kurt Wagner, a.k.a. the Nightcrawler. He's shown up in a couple of X-Men movies. Mm-hmm. He's the blue devil looking guy who has a little self-loathing about his demonic appearance because he's so devoutly Catholic. <laughs> I bring him up mainly because I really think Gordon's teleportation effect is excellent. It's very well executed. And Mm -hmm. I guarantee that they could afford to do that on television because of all the work that went into the then state of the art special effects that Mm -hmm. created Nightcrawler's teleportation in X-Men 2. Yes. That was Mm -hmm. fantastically difficult and fantastically expensive then. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, they, they look a little similar. There's, they're not the same, but they look a little similar. And I just, there's no way that I believe we can do that on a TV budget without X-Men 2 happening. Right. (laughs) My other honorable mention is Madrox the Multiple Man. Oh, okay. Uh Uh-huh. I found the Ginger Ninja a fantastic way to give somebody superpowers that are visually interesting and narratively dangerous, but you know, on a TV budget. Right. And so, of course, she reminded me of Madrox. Yeah. Unlike most mutants who have to wait until puberty to get their powers, Jamie was born with his abilities already manifesting. The doctor's (laughs) slap on his behind caused Jamie to create a perfect duplicate of himself. Oh, my God. I am so horrified for her, for her, this mother, though. I know. Like, that's, like if she had taken a tumble at any point, she would be suddenly having twins. Holy crap. Quadruplets. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> oh, my God. But I love I love that. Like, can you imagine the miracle and horrors of childbirth, like all rolled up yeah. into one? And then the doc's like, he's healthy. Whap. Which, why are we still slapping? <laughs> We're not still slapping babies. But still, <laughs> whap. Slap the baby and boom, there's two. Uh, it's yeah. twins, apparently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You see, though, the core of this power is that whenever Jamie comes into contact with enough kinetic energy, he doubles uh-huh. and triples and quadruples. <laughs> Frankly, there does not seem to be an upper limit to how many dupes he can create. Okay. And as you can imagine, this power is not only useful, but boy, does it lead to a lot of shenanigans. I imagine it would. So unlike the Ginger Ninja... Mm-hmm. Taking out the original Jamie does not do a thing to the rest of his duplicates. Wow. In fact, he has at times had some existential dread over if he even is the original or what does that mean? Right. Sure. His dupes are so independent that at one point, Jamie sent many of them out into the world to learn skills for him while he was doing other things. Oh, and of course, the Michael Keaton movie, Multiplicity. <laughs> That's basically the plot. <laughs> uh, they stole it from Jamie. They must have. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not going to. I would not be surprised. Um, So when Jamie's dupes return to him, he can reabsorb them. Okay. Okay. And he knows everything that they knew. So if he sends one off to go through medical school, it takes the time it takes. But then when that guy comes back to the original, he absorbs them and boom, he's a doctor. Wow. Now, this led to different existential questions. Sure. Was Jamie murdering these duplicates? Mm-hmm. Were they independent beings or merely extensions of himself? What does any of this mean? And if these <laughs> and other questions intrigue you, I would happily recommend the 2005 series Madrox and the title X Factor that picked up where that limited series left off with Jamie and several of his mutant friends working as private detectives. Oh, my God. 
And whenever their lives got a little calm, another dupe would show back up that had been out running around loose for four to ten years. Oh, my God. See, this is the kind of stuff that happens when you're not worried, (laughs) when you're just like, let's do it. You know, here's an idea. Let's just do it. I love that. I think that's incredible. But I'm going to pull us back now into, (laughs) you know, well over a half hour into the show, but I don't care. Uh, Back into these episodes, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 2, Episodes 20 to 22. In Scars, Coulson makes a deal with Gonzalez to band together, with Coulson as director of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Gonzalez as a consultant or board member or trustee. I don't know. Something that's not director. Gonzalez agrees because everyone is tired of this pointless conflict. Talk, people. Use your words. Reina has a vision of a big rock that turns into liquid. Jaying says it's Kree and it was made to kill inhumans. Reina and Gordon go on a recon mission to retrieve it, but it's on Gonzalez's ship and they get caught before they can take it. And I'm not sure what they were going to do to take it anyway. I mean, what was Gordon going to throw his arms around the case and zap it into the afterlife? And if it's meant to kill them, why would they want to take it? The questions, there are so many. Anyway, they bugger off on out of there. However, S.H.I.E.L.D. is now able to track Gordon's quantum what's-its trail and they discover where where Afterlife is. Coulson sends Sky and Lincoln back to Afterlife to ask Jai Ying to meet with him. Jai Ying agrees, but Gonzalez decides he should go instead of Coulson. As a peace offering, Jai Ying turns Cal over, who is more than happy to be a shield prisoner. During the meeting with Gonzalez, Jai Ying cracks a Terrigen crystal into a mist that will turn inhumans and kill humans, and tells Gonzalez he'd better hope he's inhuman. He's not, and as he crusts over, Jaying takes his gun, shoots herself twice, then stumbles outside to find Sky and announce that this is war. While all of this is happening, Mac gives Coulson his notice and goes to pack up his things on the ship. Bobby goes on a Quinjet mission with May, except it's not May, it's Agent 33 in Mayface. She confronts Bobby, saying that Bobby was the one who turned her over to Bakshi. They fight, the Quinjet lands itself in the middle of a field, and when Bobby steps outside, Ward ices her. Scars aired on May 5th, 2015, and was written by Rafe Judkins and Lauren LaFranc and directed by Bobby Roth. In SOS Part 1, it's war between S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Inhumans. And when a Quinjet unloads firepower on Afterlife, Skye chooses her mother's side and the rest of S.H.I.E.L.D. books it out of there. Over at S.H.I.E.L.D. Central, they figure out pretty quickly that Zhao Ying set them up and that Cal is a Trojan horse. Simmons finds three empty vials on him and tests them, and they're full of enough drugs and hormones and peppermint to kill a regular human, but Minty Fresh Cal seems to be doing just fine. You know, for a Cal-given value of fine. At Afterlife, Sky doesn't understand what's going on. Join the club. <laughs> she tries to talk to Zha Ying, but Zha Ying needs to heal. It turns out Zha Ying heals by sucking the life out of people, and Gordon kidnaps her a tasty snack that she feeds on. Sky goes to Reyna to try and find out what's happening. Reyna says that Zha Ying is misleading their people, and predictably, Sky doesn't believe her. Meanwhile, at an abandoned warehouse, Warden 33 tie Bobby up and explain what she did. While undercover at Hydra, Bobby gave up the safe house that 33 was in, and that's how Hydra got her. Ward tortures Bobby, intent on getting her to confess what she did and express remorse so that 33 can get closure before they kill Bobby. But Bobby refuses. Bobby escapes and gives Ward a pretty good pummeling, but he gets the best of her and then smashes her leg and hands the gun to 33 to kill Bobby. But 33 isn't feeling it. Bobby isn't sorry, she doesn't care if she lives or dies, there just isn't enough pain involved. 
Ward comes up with an idea and sticks Bobby in a room with a setup that will shoot Hunter when he inevitably comes to save her. Xia Ying meets with Reina, who sees all, including Xia Ying's evil hijinks, and as such cannot be allowed to live and blab, so Xia Ying kills her. Sky witnesses the murder and the jig is up, but as she shouts at Xia Ying, one of the lackeys knocks her out. Coulson talks to Cal, trying to get information on Xia Ying, but Cal collapses. While Simon tries to save him, he goes all extra and attacks. Coulson tries to talk sense to him, but Cal's really only interested in taking out as many S.H.I.E.L.D. agents as possible before he either dies or turns back into standard issue Cal. Coulson has no choice but to pin extra Cal to the wall with a S.H.I.E.L.D. SUV and then try to talk him down from his murderous frenzy. On Gonzalez's ship, Mac is packing up his things when he hears voices. He looks into the hall and sees Lincoln and Gordon with a bunch of Inhumans in the hallway, an unconscious sky slung over Gordon's shoulder. The Inhumans attack and take over the ship, and Xia Ying pulls out a briefcase full of Terrigen crystals. It's time to get the party started! SOS Part 1 aired on May 12, 2015 and was written by Jeffrey Bell and directed by Vincent Miziano. In SOS Part 2, Coulson talks to Cal and convinces him that the only way to protect Sky is to join with Coulson and help him beat Jai Ying. Cal remains extra, but his love for his daughter calms him down a bit and he agrees to switch allegiances. On the boat, Jai Ying and the Inhumans gather up all the humans and pull out the Terrigen crystals. Jai Ying wants Agent Weaver to enhance the beacon so everyone comes and demonstrates her evil plan when she throws a few agents into a sealed room with a broken crystal and they all cocoon and die. Whoops, no Inhumans. Next batch, please. Mac finds Skye and frees her from her cell and asks for her help. She says she can't. The Inhumans put inhibitors on her arms. He gives her a laptop and says he needs her other skills. She tries to hack in, but they can't cut the beacon remotely, so Skye goes into the beacon room to access the signal locally, and Mac runs off to get a hacksaw as Plan B. Skye sees Lincoln in the beacon room and explains what happened, but just as he's coming around, Mac clocks him with an axe and knocks him out. That was the correct choice. In the abandoned warehouse in Spain, Warden 33 leave Bobby in a room, along with a triggered shotgun aimed at the door for when Hunter tries to save her. Ward is damn near giddy over the idea of finally killing May, so he sends 33 on her way. However, 33 overhears May saying that the other agents should stand down when they see her face, so 33, knowing that Ward is super going to kill May, turns into May and then Ward shoots her and kills her and nobody really cares because, you know, 33. At the base, Fitz is about to go on a mission when Simmons says she wants to talk about what he said to her at the bottom of the ocean. He questions her timing and says there's nothing to talk about, but she says maybe there is, and then Coulson says it's time to go, and he leaves, and she cries, and it's really sweet. And yes, I'm going to spend as much time in this summary talking about Fitzsimmons as I do summarizing half of the rest of the episode. Deal with it. On the boat, Gordon places a box of Terrigen crystals in the HVAC room for best missed distribution to the rest of the ship because inhumans are nothing if not efficient. Before Gordon can open the box and crack the crystals, Max shows up with his axe and Gordon disappears. They go a few rounds of Max swinging and Gordon disappearing, then Fitz and Coulson show up and Fitz is ready to trap Gordon. Gordon pops in again, but can't pop out. He manages to grab one crystal, then materializes around the lead pipe Fitz was using as a weapon and dies. Gordon drops the crystal and Coulson throws himself under it, catches it in his left hand. There's a moment of victory, then Coulson's arm starts to cocoon, and as he's staring at it in horror, thwack, Mac drops the axe and severs Coulson's lower arm, and it is shocking and horrifying and also awesome. It is all of those things. Lincoln wakes up and finds Skye and deactivates her inhibitors and then fights the Inhumans alongside May, trying not to hurt the Inhumans because they're not bad, just misled. 
Jiaying rushes out to the deck to leave on a Quinjet, but Sky stops her. Jiaying decides she has no choice but to suck the life out of Sky. Sky breaks free and uses her powers to toss the Quinjet into the water, and then Cal comes out and cracks Jiaying's back, and this woman survived being cut into pieces and having her organs removed, but apparently a little chiropractic attention is her Achilles heel. Whatever, she's dead, it's done, the fight is over. Later at the base, Sky says goodbye to Cal, who's going to Tahiti. Later, she visits him in his new town with his new identity as Cal Winslow, kindly neighborhood veterinarian. She says hello and introduces herself to him as Daisy. When he goes back inside, Coulson and Skye decide that they're going to build a secret special team of Inhumans to keep everybody safe. Meanwhile, at the bottom of the ocean, Terrigen crystals are dissolving into the world's fish supply, so that'll be fine, probably. Later, Simmons is studying the giant alien liquefying rock and Fitz asks her to dinner. He leaves and she realizes the glass cage is open, but right as she's about to shut it, the thing liquefies and swallows her whole. SOS Part 2 aired on May 12, 2015 and was written by Jed Whedon and Marissa Tancheron and directed by Billy Guyhart. All right, Joshua. So we've got these episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I love this stuff, but I get the feeling that you're a little more frustrated by it. These are very fun episodes where a lot of things happen. Yes. And that's good. Because there's so much happening that you don't have a lot of time to think about how damn stupid most of it is. Some of it is. I mean, I guess we can start by talking about the stupid Theta Protocol. Okay, I'm so angry about the Theta Protocol, Lonnie. I'm angry about it. All right, Joshua, express your feelings. (laughs) I'm okay. Look, the the actual real talk and you've heard me talk about Ultron. So this is not a surprise. (laughs) Yes. I was mad as shit at that fucking helicarrier showing up at the end of Age of Ultron. It's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Don't you dare go undoing Winter Soldier and don't you dare have fucking S.H.I.E.L.D. be your deus ex machina when they are bad guys. Okay? <laughs> like, as far as the MCU is concerned, they're bad guys. Mm-hmm. Nobody gives a shit about this show. I'm very sorry to say that, but I'm talking about at the meta level. Right. Nobody cares about right. this show. Mm-hmm. In fact, we'll get to it, but I finally understand the joke about the fish oil pills and the conversation with the Russos. They don't care. Nobody cares. And the fact that Joss Whedon decided to care because his brother's working on this show is mm-hmm. extra. Like I was mad as shit about it the minute it happened in the movie. And then to find out that I was supposed to see it coming because the barest minimum of track was laid for it in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. of all things. Yes. Unaccept- I'm just not. I'm not happy about it. And And now that I am here and caring about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you know how much the Theta Protocol mattered? Not at all. Negative 100%. Yes. I mean, as somebody who cares deeply about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and I was watching it alongside all of these movies coming out, A... I didn't even understand. Like when I watched Ultron and this helicarrier showed up and I was like, okay, I don't even know what the hell that's about. And then we go into um, back into Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and they're like, yeah, so um, this whole, you know, weird taking over two shields, blah, 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 you know, secret super spy stuff that Coulson was doing was to build this helicarrier, which has nothing to do, like no influence really at all, aside from an excuse for Gonzalez to split off and not trust Coulson. Um, Oh my God, wait. It's worse. <laughs> this is why they were out of money. Yeah. This is why Hartley died. Yeah. 
partly died for this fucking helicarrier. It's so it's so stupid, and it really has nothing to do because this season of Agents of Shield is about the Inhumans, and it's about Sky and her parents, and like all of this stuff. And then we have this like weird side trip into this stupid. Gonzalez and Bobby and Mac and betrayal and yada 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 and none of it really makes any sense and I was watching it and paying attention at the time and even at the time I was like I don't even I don't care because it narratively it doesn't have to do with any of the stuff that actually matters in this season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It is simply having them reflect on each other so that we've got some kind of continuity you know reflected between these um, properties and it's just weird and it doesn't work and I hate it too I, I it doesn't belong in Ultron because it doesn't have an advancement of the narrative really in Ultron aside from Nick Fury shows up you know in a farm yeah. at some point you know I mean it's just um, a deus ex machina which yeah. is like day one don't do that writer and advice. then it's taking up narrative space in um, this season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that it doesn't earn you know that it doesn't it doesn't have like if you're going to make it that big a deal that's got to be what your season is about but our season is not about that is not interested in that we just kind of do this little side hustle you know and it doesn't and it kind of takes the focus away from what we're really dealing with in this season which is sky and her parents and the inhumans you know um so for me overall and then we've got you know the bobby and mac betrayal which i don't think because it's it's a betrayal but it's not really a betrayal and like everybody's still friends and there's no real you know payback or problem with that except for that hunter doesn't trust bobby anymore but then of course hunter goes to save her and she gets shot and then that's fine so i don't know the whole thing um doesn't really work for me narratively it is it is these two things kind of mixing little parts of themselves with each other just to kind of like keep that connection but they don't belong you know and the you know you got your chocolate and my peanut butter but they don't go together you know? yeah it's more like you got your anchovies in my peanut butter yes! so knock it off exactly and screwing up both the anchovies and the peanut butter like it's not yep. good for anybody you know so yeah theta protocol uh, you know i call bullshit on it and i honestly like i love this show and i'm into this show and every time i watch it again and they bring up theta protocol i'm like oh what is that again because i don't care and it doesn't matter now that i've ranted yes. rightfully about theta protocol i want to say that I am actually enjoying most of my viewing time of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. now. Yes. At the same time, it frustrates the living shit out of me from literally top to bottom. Like just, <laughs> I am, I'm no longer watching it as a chore, but at the same time, part of my enjoyment of watching it is like, well, how, how will they drop the ball today? You know? <laughs> well, there's so much stuff going on that it can be really, it is like a shell game trying to like you know you've got you've got these um you know these moving shells and all this stuff going on and instead of a little ball in one of them there's just like a little turd there and you got to figure out where the turd is you know but um <laughs> but overall nobody wins the monty nobody, Lonnie. nobody, nobody. wins nobody wins yeah. it's all losing um but overall though like there's a lot of stuff that i absolutely love in these episodes and i'm gonna start by talking about the thing that i love the goddamn yeah. most which is yeah. cal preach <laughs> i Love Take your Cal. time, Pastor. Every, Tell me about Cal. <laughs> every moment that Cal is on screen is a delight for me. I love when he's talking to Jaye and he's like, I will personally rip out Raina's little tainted rat heart. Or not, up to you. You know, and he just he's trying so hard, but he's got all this rage and he's got all this trauma. He's got all this stuff going on and he keeps trying to balance and he, he goes from, you know, from one to 11 and then back to like five. And it's so sweet though. There is this like genuine sweetness within him. And I can see why Jai Ying 
Although I don't know who Jai Ying was before all of her trauma. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about the role of trauma in this season because there's a huge theme for like so many of these characters. Um, so I don't know who she was before her trauma, but I can absolutely see at Cal's core, I think, is this very sweet guy. Like this very sweet, very vulnerable, very open guy who just went through such hell and tried to change himself to save his family and put his family back together and he couldn't ever do it, you know? Um, That to me makes him so... You know, it's so like I I absolutely have so much empathy and so much sympathy for him. Um, But I love like everything when he goes all extra and then they shoot him like with like three icers just shooting and shooting and shooting. He goes, oh, and there goes the feeling in my legs. You know, (laughs) there's such a a rampant wild delight in the way that um, that Kyle McLaughlin plays this character. And you can see in Cal that whatever moment he's in, he's in it, you mm-hmm. know, whatever yeah. it is. Um, and I think like there's so much about him, like the bicycle built for two, you know, creepy guys singing innocent songs. You know, we see that in Ultron as well. So it feels like this is maybe a Whedon Brothers thing. They just get really <laughs> into this like idea, this particular aesthetic. I think it works. It worked better for me with Cal singing bicycle built for two, which I found interesting because he sings that all the way through. Right. You know, from the beginning, we have him humming that song, you know, um, whenever he's in one of these kind of, you know, manic extra Cal phases, you know, Um, and it's creepy on the one hand, but it's also kind of interesting because his family has three people in it. Yeah. But he sings Bicycle Built for Two. And I think that it really is about he wants to include Jai Ying, but I think he knows that Jai Ying is like full on evil, you know, and he's kind of in denial about that. But the the choice of that song, Bicycle Built for Two, is really interesting to me. Yeah, I think it starts out as him and Jai Ying. Yeah. Like in his life. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and then by the end, it's him and Sky. Yeah. You know, that that's his that's his um, loyalty. That's who he, you know, really wants to save and protect is Sky. Yes. Yeah. I, I think when he didn't know Sky, when she was just a theory, yeah. you know, like a missing baby out there, yeah. he could he could really. Well, it's me and Jai Ying against the world, you yes. know, and then at some point she kind of abandons him. Mm-hmm. Um, right or wrong, boy, that's a complicated thing. Remember when, well, you probably don't, but remember <laughs> when I used to think Jia Ying had made the right call, right. you know, that she was a good person mm-hmm. doing the best she can? Yeah. Well, the jig is up. The jig is up. She is, uh, yeah, she's she's pretty extra herself. But um, the thing with Cal, and this is something that like, I mean, we see that he's a, he's murdered like a ton of people, you know? And I mean, we find out that he did that to save her. He killed that village to feed her. Well, actually, she killed the village. He just rounded them up, which is not great. Don't get me wrong. But it really has been. We've been this entire season thinking that he just, I mean, they don't even describe the village that well. I've always been picturing it because I thought it was Cal. Yeah. just carnage torn from limb you know? to limb right instead of yeah, sucked but it's blue by Jai probably Yang. just yeah. a bunch of dead people piled yeah. up yeah which is still a massacre oh but, no it's terrible but, right. but i've just been picturing it a different way so that's actually a really good reveal I, I, think. I think it is a good reveal i actually quite like that and you know he's but i mean we, we've also seen him though i mean when we were first introduced to him it was with his hand dripping with blood i mean oh he's, yeah he's been killing people in front of us in in pretty wild ways 
you know. Yes. They never said anything yeah. about the, the details of the village. They yeah. just showed us who Cal actually is. Yes. And we filled in the blanks. Right. Which is using the, the momentum of the viewer's presumptions to bring, you know, and that's the best way to have a reveal. There's no yes. lies told, no lies detected. Right. But yeah. yet, because you we make associations ourselves as viewers, we put things together. And when puzzle pieces are set in front of us and we put them together, we did that. But the puzzle pieces are honest. And that's how you pull a twist. Mm -hmm. That's how it's done. And I thought that that was nicely done. Yeah. No, I agree. And it really, it kind of, I mean, it kind of reframes not everything, mm -hmm. you know. Well, it definitely, re we'll get to her, but it definitely reframes Xia Ying from the ground up. Yes, absolutely. You know? mm -hmm. um, but it reframes Cal a little bit and leaves us in a place where we can be like, well. Yeah. I mean, look, as far as we know, he ever only killed bad people if he didn't kill the village yeah. you know but he so, brought the village to her like no it's not good he, he's, he's at the very least an accessory an accessory if not a co-murderer oh, you know yeah so i mean he's he does have like the moral obligation of that like that is definitely on his you know on his plate you know of responsibility um but because of his trauma he, he found like his baby was taken he found his wife cut to pieces her organs removed like going through that kind of a trauma it doesn't excuse it but it makes it something that like you know you can understand the kind of fury and horror you know what that would do to somebody you know and so yeah, like i can yes. kind of i can kind of understand it like i have sympathy for him i have empathy and i think that those are the best kind of complicated moral characters to look at are the ones that we can have sympathy with that we can like yes what you did was wrong but god in your place what would i have done like you know had i had the ability to do what you did what would i have done when you're in that kind of horrible traumatic experience i mean you're you change who you are as a person just changes and that's really really hard um but he Throughout this, the one core element for him, the the guiding principle is love. Like yes. he loves fiercely. And you see that in everything that he does, even when it's misguided, even when it's immoral, even when it's cruel, even when it's violent, it's all motivated by love. And I find that to be such an interesting kind of like thematic space to play with. What's what's really interesting, we'll we will definitely get to this character, yeah. but the as you describe him, what he kind of sideways reminds me of is like the Punisher. Yeah. Who loses his family horribly and then just shuts down emotionally and becomes a vengeance machine. Yeah. And that's kind of I mean, again, we will so get there, but that is just like a poison pill of toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Now, I don't want to hold Cal up as a grand example. <laughs> But at the same time, he pretty clearly does not shut down emotionally. Yes. Like they are they are redirected badly, his emotions, yes. you know, but but he doesn't become this dead inside vengeance no. machine. He has an incredible amount of joy and love with him. You know? Yes. Yeah. Cal is there to suck the morrow out of life, even if that means sucking the literal morrow out of you. Yes. Right. Exactly. Like. He's here for it. Um, and so it's not an example, but it is an excellent contrast because I think that largely what we have gotten in popular media is the Punisher model. Yes. You know, of exactly. the dead inside vengeance man. Yeah. You know. And Cal's more complicated. He's fractured. 
Yes. You know, like yeah. he's definitely fractured, but love is his motivation for everything. It is the only thing he can see and he can't see outside of his own love and his own loss. And that's what makes him unable to uh, basically like moderate his own responses and his own violence. Um, but he's so beautifully written and Kyle McLaughlin like I have never enjoyed Kyle McLaughlin that much I will be honest with you I love him so much in this role every mm-hmm. minute I love him in it um I love when he sees Jai Ying he says hiya honey what you been up to you know <laughs> right Just... it's, he's so he's so wonderful but I gotta say like it was the final moment oh my god with Sky before he went to Tahiti when he knows he's never gonna remember her when he knows that everything that has motivated him up until this time is going to be taken from him. And he's okay with that because she's safe, you know, Mm -hmm. and that was the only thing that he wanted. And then he says, you know, you're better than I imagined. And I imagined you perfect, but you're way more interesting than that. And that honestly, I think is one of the best things I've ever heard anybody say to anybody, (laughs) you know, 100% agree. It's so strong. It's man, like, I am uh, I am unprepared to live in a space where I'm taking parenting cues from Mr. Hyde, <laughs> yes. but nevertheless, here we are. <laughs> you know what? Life is surprising and confusing. <laughs> Things just happen that you don't expect. Um, and then when she was talking about best day ever, and he was like, nope, July 2nd, 1988. And I, I mean, I cried. I cried during the scene. I thought it was so beautiful and so touching. And then, you know, he has this whole Tahiti thing and she goes and visits him and he says his business is a magical place you know which is like the whole cue like if anybody was wondering what happened to cal like you know we figure it out at that point you know listen up a-holes is brought to you by furious tahiti getaways these beach vacations are such a steal you'll barely believe you were ever even there Get the memory of your workaday life wiped away with furious Tahiti getaways. Just you wait and cree. Tahiti, it's a magical place. Some side effects may occur, such as not having any snapshots or keepsakes from your vacation, general memory loss, feelings of paranoia, and graphomania. Or instead of a shady vacation sold to you by a scary man in an eye patch and black trench coat, you can give that money directly to Chipperish Media. That way, we can give you the retreat you actually deserve as a fine connoisseur of genre fiction and storytelling. Hours and hours of smart commentary on the shows you love brought to you absolutely ad-free. But that's not all. You also get exclusive content, personalized superhero reading suggestions from me, and access to the Discord chat, where other brilliant minds that have not been wiped by clandestine government agencies compare notes on what we do right, what we do wrong, and what we ought to do in the future. Go to patreon.com chipperish to find out more. It's just, it's so sweet. And then, of course, he's a veterinarian. And I'm like, well, you know, humans, like he was a doctor. Humans and dogs are different. So like, but I guess if you can, you know, insert all those memories, then I guess you can insert the knowledge of, of veterinary school. You know, 
I I am going to say that's a bit of a weird flex. Yes. Mm-hmm. But making him an actual human doctor would have just been a bridge too far ethically. I think so. so. I think so. It's a good call. It's a I, good call. It's I weird. I think it's the right call. Right call. Yes. It's, it's weird, but it's the right call. You can you can be like, all right, Cal can work on like birds and, you know, lizards <laughs> right. and dogs and cats and all that we kind all of stuff. We all love our dogs, but it's not my grandma. So, exactly. okay. <laughs> Um, and he's so lovely. And then when she introduces herself as Daisy and then, you know, her name changed to Daisy, which I find very confusing. It's very difficult for me. It takes everybody a while to get used to it. But um, God, I just I love all of that. And so I thought the Cal stuff, honestly, is my favorite part, I think, of this season in general. And definitely, you know, to to go ahead and give a preview of the end, like uh, my favorite part of these episodes, definitely. Yeah, I agree. He's he's really, really good. He's yeah. really good and is not my own favorite part yes. but he feeds very specifically into it oh uh, we'll get there i'm so. looking forward to that um all right so here we have sky's other dad right <laughs> colson um, spy dad spy dad right? <gasps> spy two dads another oh. spinoff oh my god oh if colson and cal fell in love okay anyway um, we should we should pitch this this other thing to disney like as their kids show like their tween show like my spy two dads my two spy dads right i'm done i'm good but man (laughs) so we have colson right um and colson actually through all of these episodes for somebody who's so central like you know he's kind of a background figure i guess he's he's on punishment for theta protocol nonsense but um stand in the corner until you've learned your lesson exactly think about what you did right Um, how dare you be involved in another (laughs) avengers movie how dare you Uh, but we have this whole thing with his relationship with Sky, right? Everybody's like, you can't be, you know, um, objective when it comes to her. Um, you know, she is clearly like your daughter. You know, uh, we're constantly. This is the difference between like informed relationships and informed qualities and things that are shown and demonstrated, right? We're constantly informed that Sky is like a daughter to him. She means so much to him. He can't be objective where she is concerned. But I think that that's what we're told that Sky is super, super special, right? To Colson and. You know, actually, she's important to Coulson, definitely, you know. But the fact of the matter is that for the entire team, I don't see him being any less objective about, like, say, Sky than he is about anybody on his team. Like, he will break every rule. He will do everything. He will, like, it doesn't matter who it is, you know. So I don't see, I see Sky as being very important to him. We are informed that this is a father-daughter thing, that she is the closest thing he's ever had to family. I don't believe that she's part of the closest thing he's ever had to family, which is Mm -hmm. this family, right? You know, with May as the mom figure and then Fitz and Simmons and Skye and even Ward for a while. And now all the others as like the kids, you know, Um, but this is very much a family story and they are all that important to him. He would break all of these rules for any of them. So for me, like this, this pushing of this idea that Skye is somehow more special than everybody else, that he can be somewhat more objective about the rest of the team than he can about sky i don't buy that is that something that 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 tracks for you no not really Mm -hmm. i I mean one of my frustrations with this show is that they like to pretend that the relationships are super duper important yeah but the fact is i mean this is this is probably the worst example but really way too much of the relationship stuff on this show is told not shown Yes. I mean, across the board, I would say that about Fitzsimmons as a as a couple. I would say that about Coulson as dad to Sky. I would say about 100 percent of Bobby and Hunter, the actual hell. Yeah. 
<laughs> a lot of it is informed. I would push back on Fitzsimmons. I think Fitzsimmons As is friends, demonstrated. I'm with you. As lovers, no. But this is a thing that we will continue to argue about over the next 100 billion episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I think. <laughs> Assuming she gets out of the rock. I don't know. Well, um, we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't I don't buy it um entirely like yes if they didn't couch it as sky and just couch it as this group of agents but then if they did that i have to circle back around to them being 100 percent right that he shouldn't be director right mm -hmm. that lack of objectivity makes him a bad director yeah but he's lack of, he's got lack of objectivity with the whole team he will burn the world for that team yeah yeah but it's the team of whatever these you know, five to eight people yeah. mm -hmm. and the rest of the thousands or hundreds or dozens or whatever agents that I have can go hang. That's right, not exactly. a good way to be the director. No, I'm absolutely agreeing with you. I'm saying that like he's he's that way with the whole team and it's and Sky is not special in that regard. I don't think I think that's an informed specialness. It's weird that his relationship with Sky is so central to the question of his directorship. Yes. And that the answer ultimately is don't let Coulson be director. Right. But then they immediately want us to stop thinking about that so he can be director. And I'm like, exactly. you guys made choices. Right. This did not fall down from the sky already written and you just had to shoot it. You made it this way. Right. And I also love how Gonzalez, who has been planning this coup, you know, for months, right? Yeah. This is what he's been planning. He's going to take over S.H.I.E.L.D. He's going to be objective, right? And then we have Coulson in the beginning of this being like, all right, here's the deal. You leave me as director and occasionally I'll consult you. And Gonzalez is like, you know what? Sounds fine. Like, that's uh, cool. You know? Yeah. And uh, so you've set up this whole betrayal with Bobby and Mac and you've done this whole thing with Gonzalez. And then it's just like, okay, you know, we're just going to reset to places and you know and just start it over and that also like i'm glad I'm, I'm glad it's over i'm glad it's over easily but it also becomes even more annoying because there's absolutely no payoff to that whole thing yes and and in fact what little payoff we get mm -hmm. is showing that gonzalez would be a better director oh yeah oh, i mean yeah. I was not expecting that yeah no well okay first of all i think there's some you know adama you know, he's got some Adama on his shoes, which brings with him, which Edward <laughs> James true. almost brings with him. Yes. That sense of when you see, like, I am sorry, I don't care what it is. If Edward James almost isn't, if I go in for surgery and Edward James almost walks in and says, you know what, I'm handling this. I would be like, I feel safe with you. Like there is just something not. about, yeah. <laughs> there's something about that man. I don't care what he's doing. If he's in charge, I'm like, everything's going to be fine. You know, he just gives you that sense of like, he can handle shit. <laughs> you know? Right. Well, everything's yeah. going to be fine. As long as you're not the person he's sacrificing to get the fine. Yeah, no, true. Fair I mean, enough. This is yeah. this is when I when he first showed up and I was like, well, he's not a good guy. I was <laughs> definitely doing Edward James Olmos things, yes. you know, not Gonzalez things. So <laughs> and then it turns out this whole a big fat chunk of the season is about whether Coulson should be director or Gonzalez. And in the end, we wind up with Coulson. But we know the answer was the other way. Exactly. Interesting choices. Yes. And I mean, the thing is that that happened before Gonzalez got cocooned. I know. 
So yes. it was a decision that was made. When Gonzalez is alive or dead, like if he's alive, definitely the better director. If he's dead, maybe also the better director. Um, <laughs> Schrodinger's director. Exactly. But see, the thing is, like, I love Coulson with my whole heart. Like, I adore him and I adore Clark Craig as Coulson. I recognize intellectually that this is the actual, like, if you look at it with any objectivity, <laughs> you know, um, that this is the actual right thing. At the same time, I love Coulson. So, and he, you know, and this is not a... A, a spy story it's a family story which is why i'm into it you know <laughs> so yeah i agree with you but they've made it a family story about spies so maybe balance your shit maybe balance your shit uh, you know what <laughs> fair enough and i think at the end right we have this wonderful i swear to god every time i've seen this thing a million times i i watch agents of shield the whole way through at least twice a year. I'm telling you, this is like one of my favorite, favorite shows to go to. Um, and every time we have this moment, he catches the Terrigen crystal and you're watching as the cocooning is going up his arm. And every single time that ax comes down, I gasp and it is awful and delightful and wonderful. And something about Coulson losing his arm feels appropriate. It feels like, okay, he's paid a price. There's been consequence, at least, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I am a genre-brained monster. Yes. Because even in the split second that it was happening, the back of my brain was like, well, they're not killing Coulson. How are they going to get out of this? Right. <laughs> and then the axe falls, and I was like, huh, did not see that coming. But, I, but it I was know. like, I could not, I mean, I wasn't... <laughs> It's a great scene. So when I say this, this is a Josh problem, not an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. problem. Okay. <laughs> that there's just a part of my brain that was like, huh, trying to solve this problem before they solved it on screen. Right. Yeah. Well, they're not going to kill Cole. Oh, Axe. Okay. Legit. There you go. Legit. Cool, and cool. it just, and the thing that's so wonderful is that we don't get, you don't get the shot of Mac holding the Axe thinking about it, right? No, no it's hesitation. Just, it's just, foop. And it's gone. And that moment for me is always so shocking. Every single time I jump in my chair, I know it's coming. I've seen it before. <laughs> and every single time it has that effect on me. And I just, I love it. I think it's wonderful. And there's something about there being a consequence for Coulson, which feels right at yeah, the end of yeah. this season. It feels like we, we need to have that consequence and where we miss consequence in so many other spaces, we get it here. And we get it as he's being heroic. You know, yes. like he's saving everybody by, you know, grabbing that thing. Of course, if it crashed on the floor, he also would have been cocooned and then everybody would have died. But still. Um, but still, no, he was sacrificing himself. Yeah. He knew what he was yeah. doing. Yeah. You know, um, and the reason we don't get a reaction shot of Mac wondering if he should do it is because that reaction shot would be Mac going, motherfucker deserves it. And then exactly. doing it. <laughs> I'm That's not even, why. Mac didn't think about it is why. <laughs> Mac was like, boom, done. You Just know? desserts. Also, I saved Just, your life. Exactly. I mean, oh my God, it's so great. So I, I absolutely love that. Um, but mostly, you know, everything is about Sky, right? Yes. I mean, this season is predominantly about Sky. And yet I find myself not having a whole lot to say about sky i mean i like her like this is i would say all the sky stuff that we've had up until now it's at this point and from here on out that i really like i started liking sky more you know toward the end of season one then in season two i like her okay you know um but from here on out like the sky that we get this this fully realized inhuman sky 
is this guy that I really like. And so I've liked her in this. You know, I believe her conflict. She's been searching for her mother her whole life. Um, when her mother goes bad, I mean, after having just found her and then having this, like, you know, this relationship with her, that's all really hard. Um, but even with that, like, I, I understand why she believes Jiaying, but she also keeps her head enough to, like, kind of suspect Jiaying. You know, yeah. Um, and then, you know, after all of this, when they're on the boat and there's this big war, she defends the Inhumans. You know, they only know what they're told. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so yeah. I like that she also defends them. I could spare Lincoln. I think we could have killed Lincoln <laughs> first and then been like, oh, no, no, don't kill the rest of them. Um, we can't. They, they have to smooch. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I'm um, assuming. Yeah, yeah. But well, I'm you know not what? excited about it. Right, yeah. It's just, <laughs> ugh, whatever. So she transitions, of course, at this point into Daisy. No big spoilers, but she is Daisy Johnson from now on. She has a full identity. She's not just Sky, no last name. You know, she becomes Daisy Johnson, <laughs> and that's the inhuman that she grows to become. Um, and I really like her, you know, um, from this point on. So the, the ways that I've been, I've had a lot of affection for her that are informed by seasons like this season and afterward. Um, but I'm curious to know, like, how you feel about her at this point in in your watch of agents of shield okay this is a great question because it's kind of <laughs> like the colson relationship with sky question mm-hmm. when they decide to make this season about sky sky is amazing yes she's mm-hmm. been my favorite part a couple times mm-hmm. but they don't make enough of this season about sky like it's it's a real problem for her to all of a sudden be this awesome and competent in the last you know whatever five episodes Mm -hmm. when she has been large like i believed her emotional conflict i got the 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 switching sides and and she's a really solid payoff of that enemy within kind of thing that they were trying to do all season Mm -hmm. but we have spent so little time with her yeah Mm -hmm. that that if i if i just accept that that's what they want me to do then it's wonderful yeah but it does make me wonder about the i mean I don't want to go back and count, but I mean, I would say 60 or 70% of this season that had nothing to do with her or where she was right. just, you know, there in a glass box or whatever. Yes. All this nonsense. Mm-hmm. I really liked Sky here at the end and I can absolutely see going forward me being a Daisy fan, you yes. know, mm-hmm. um, and it, but it does make me wish that they had put some damn effort into her in the first two seasons. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, she was uh, like uncooked, you know, for yeah. a lot of that. And so she's kind of baking and on cool. the, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I like her. Um, I really like her. I enjoy her a lot more, you know, from this point forward. Definitely. Yes. Um, but as far as uh, I'm concerned, yeah. season three Sky showed up in these last couple episodes. Uh, yes, she did. She so did. I like she that. Did. I like mm-hmm. her now. You yeah. know, Daisy. Daisy yeah. showed up in the last couple episodes. Daisy yeah. showed up. And that's that's who she is. So um, so for a season that's entirely about Sky, like there just isn't for me like a whole lot to say. And I have that same problem with Jai Ying. Yeah, she's supposed to be at least not the whole season big bad, but like the second half, you know, big bad. Um, And I don't really care that much about her. Like, I only find her interesting in relation to what she means to Sky and Kat. And I like her, you know, her heel turn in this because I didn't care about her when she was good. I don't care about her much more when she's bad, but at least when she's evil. Wait, we have an answer to a research question, Lonnie. Yes. Because you're right, she's a gray hat, yes. but you can't have a gray hat 
uh-huh. in terms of faces and heels. Mm-hmm. And we, thanks to some, uh, some specifically some information from Anya on the mm-hmm. Discord chat. Yes. Her significant other is very into wrestling and was like, no, there's no such thing as an in-between. Either you know who you're rooting for or it's bad writing. And I was like, uh-huh. okay, I agree. So mm-hmm. we have settled on, thanks to Discord, I believe we have settled on one of two options. You mentioned mm-hmm. spleen. Yes. Since it's a literal in-between space, the, the face <laughs> and the heel. But we didn't love that because it's internal and we can yes. see the face and the heel. And so I suggested gut uh-huh. because it's literally in between and visible. Yes. Okay. And you can decide what you mean by that. The guts or there's too much gut or not enough. Gut. Like there's all kinds yeah. of metaphorical space there. So Xia Ying's turn from gut to heel. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I, there. I just wanted everybody to know we had a research question. We put that thing to bed. Thanks again to the Discord people. <laughs> Absolutely. Discord chat um, is a great place. And there's so many fantastic discussions going on there. And everybody there is fabulous. So it's really, really great. So I apologize for the interruption, but yes, Zha Ying's turn from gut to heel. From gut to heel. And that's when, at that point, she becomes more interesting to me, you know? Um, and so I, I, I like her as a villain. I love this um, this understanding of what actually happened in that village. Uh, we see her, you know, and we see Gordon, too, who is also a bad guy because he is feeding Zha Ying. Like, he's yeah. going out and grabbing people. This guy with the duct tape over his face, right? suddenly in this place having you know teleported with Gordon this guy with no eyes and then he comes in and this woman like sucks the life out of him um, and I love the effect of it the tu- the turning blue the the color the eyes going all white mm-hmm. um, I thought that was a really nice effect that again we see later when she is doing that to Sky you know um, but but I think Jai Ying though like when she's full evil is less interesting but I don't mind that I don't care about her so much <laughs> Like when I didn't care about her and she was supposed to be good and she was, you know, Sky's mom and all this kind of stuff and she'd been through all this stuff, I was like, okay, you know. Um, but now I don't have to feel bad about it. Um, also, I think that like there's a lot in the performance with Jai mm-hmm, Ying. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daikin Lockman plays the the character and I actually really liked her in Dollhouse. I thought she was really good. So I'm not sure that it's it's a you know a bad actor thing. I think it's like there's something about her incredibly understated performance. Mm -hmm. Like she says everything in kind of this monotone. We don't really see much facial expression from her. We don't get much from her. She's sort of a closed book, you know, and you have that next to the turn to 11 performances from like Cal and Raina and Ward and like all of this stuff going on. And she feels really flat to me. Yeah. And it didn't work for me. I don't know. Do you have a, a, a response to, to her for that performance? Was that maybe part of the reason why we don't care? Well, I I do feel like the torch was handed off badly between yeah. Whitehall to her as big yeah. bads mm-hmm. um, in terms of character, right? Because yes. Whitehall, we got immediately. Like, and Whitehall's another dial to 11 guy. Yeah. You know? but he's very much the suave Nazi. Like, yes. we cannot like mm-hmm. that. In fact, you're not supposed to. You right. know? Mm-hmm. Um but that's good. We get it. We're like, oh, we are sort of repulsed and attracted to you simultaneously, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I think a certain amount of that goes into Cal also, although we start out very repulsed and warm yes. to attracted, you know? Yes. And in the middle of that is Xia Ying, who is supposed to ride this line. I really. So what's interesting to me and why last time we talked about her, I said, I don't really see her as evil is she basically acts like Colson. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
it, as the leader. And this mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. Check this out. I just realized this when you were saying this. She acts like Coulson as the leader, but she acts like May in her aspect. Mm-hmm. And yes. she is like the perfect f- fake parent mm-hmm. to Sky, right. who has adopted Coulson and May. Like she's the amalgam of these two ideas, I think. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in the process, she just kind of fades into the background to all of these other, like even Gordon, who I 100% bought as a good guy. Like I really expected, I believed you. It's not surprising Xia Ying had a heel turn, but I sort of expected Gordon to go, what have I done? You know, but no, he's bad. He's he's 100% signed in. I actually love Gordon. I love Gordon all around. I love that he's bad. I love that. I love his power. I love the special effects of his power. I love that he, you know, that his eyes are like, you know, that he's had this, this consequence, this sacrifice for his power in a similar way to Reyna. I love the way that he interacted with, like, I love everything about Gordon. Mm -hmm. Like even, even him as a bad guy, I have no problem with that, you know, and it was really, really great. And when you have that moment where you realize that he is gathering these, you know, live humans, humans to feed to Jai Ying like he's getting you know mice for a snake you know Um, it's just and he's he's completely fine with it like you know whatever conflict he may have had but also she got to him when he was like 13 we saw his origin right Right. you know he was just a he was just a baby you know and was freaking out like she really again that this idea that we'll we'll wrap up with of the effects of trauma but like Jaheen yeah. preyed upon that trauma too absolutely so. absolutely and molded him you know to support her and it and she's always about like you know I'm going to protect our people I'm going to protect our people um but it's really about protecting her power you know as we see when she kills Reyna mm-hmm. you know because Reyna one of your people you know she's inhuman like when she kills Reyna you know we see who she really really is that's see that's perfect that's really good we everything that I thought about Zhang Ying w- was true, right? Mm-hmm. Like that she's basically the Coulson for Inhumans, and that's yeah. why I was kind of conflicted on her. Mm-hmm. And then, in, but in the end, she is shown to just be a giant hypocrite. Yeah, and I don't, I don't actually like that choice. And I mean, there's a couple of reasons. Um, <sighs> that I don't because if this is for real, the end of Reina, then I'm angry about it. Yeah, I'm not gonna rant, but. Mm, no, Ridiculous. process your anger. That is the end of Reina. So that's bullshit. This is a terrible way for her to go out. Because she's awesome. Yes. Yeah. Why would we waste her on this kind of... And it's unworthy. I mean, it's one thing to kill her, which sucks because we don't get any more Reina. But to kill her like this... This is a crap moment. Yeah, it's yeah. not good. It's trip all over again. Like, this is no way for this character to go out. So yes. I don't like that. Yeah. But the other thing is, it undermines the rest of the thing that makes her a fairly good villain. Like, I yeah. get... Again, this yeah. is really hard because Coulson is so prepared to sacrifice everything for his people. Right. So if we saw that as a in a more principled way and then saw Xia Ying doing it in a less principled way, that would be spectacular. Mm-hmm. But she's just yeah. a big hypocrite because she murders one of her own just to hold her position. Right. I don't like it. I don't because like it. Because she's she's claiming to be Coulson, but she's not actually Coulson. You know, like she's claiming Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. So she's pretending it's all about her power. Right. Yes. It's mm-hmm. 100. And, and when it wasn't about her power, when it was about mm-hmm. her power, because I, I would even accept the villainous answer of it's about my power because I'm the one who's prepared to do the difficult things. Right. Mm-hmm. But the core of the difficult things you're doing is to protect my people. And then she just murders Reyna with a stiletto. 
Right. And I'm like, eh, this sucks for everybody. I don't, I don't like it. She yeah, actually it kind of moment. becomes a standard issue MCU villain at that yeah. point. Yeah, no, she flattens out a lot in that moment. She definitely does. Um, and then, you know, we have, of course, this ultimate evil, right? Here she is um, trying to kill Sky, you know, and she's just, yeah. you know, for, for no reason. I mean, she could have left, you know, she could have figured something be like, or something like, I mean, but like there's, she's been, um, you know, she's, she's been defeated. Like she doesn't have the Quinjet. She can't get away. She's killing her daughter just to kill her daughter, you know? And there's like, I, why would you do that? And it's terrible. And then poor Sky in that moment, like, you know, this mother that she's been searching for forever tries to kill her. Um, that is hugely, I mean, first of all, that her mother is a murderer and a bad guy anyway, you know, but then tries to kill her. Yeah. Like doesn't even love her, like has no love in her soul at all. She's just cold. Um, it's really like, it's not a great moment and it, it feels like it should be so much more powerful. You know, like I am so much more affected by Cal, you know, and his yeah. speech to, to Sky at the end. And this moment, which should be this heartbreaking, ultimate betrayal. I'm like, yeah, you know, whatever. Like, I didn't really feel that moment. And I felt like I should, but I didn't. I, I mean, not to beat this horse. That's mm -hmm. the thing, right? Yeah. Like, hey, this is a really important moment. Look at it. And we're like, but wait, why is it important? I mean, well, yeah, we can it backfill be. it. I can tell mm -hmm. you why it's important. Right. But it doesn't it doesn't quite have the. Yeah, that because we that haven't feeling. believed yeah. in that that relationship. We haven't believed in that. We had that one moment where Jaying confesses that she's Sky's mother. You know and I mean? That's mm -hmm. a fact. But like aside from that, there's not much from Jaying. You get all this from Cal. You know, you believe how much he loves Sky, but Jaying, you're like, eh, you know, there's just like, there's this weirdness. And then when she turns, you know, it all, it all fits and everything. But I mean, to be that much villain. And that's the thing, like, that's what makes, I think, Cal so much more interesting is that his, his love, the things that we understand about him, um, make him more, you know, sympathetic. And for Jaying, you know, she doesn't get that sympathy. We don't feel for her really that much, even though she's been through this horrible trauma. Um, and then, of course, Cal, you know, basically does a chiropractic back crack on her. And then that's what kills her. This woman has had her organs removed. She's been sliced to pieces. He stitched her back together. That's what does it. <laughs> yeah, it's weird because yeah. I, I guess it's supposed to be a, a neck snap. But that's not worse than the suave Nazi taking your stuff out of your body and putting it in jars. Right. Like, how does that kill her when this? But I mean, but at this point, I'm just so grateful she's dead. I don't really care that much. Um, but <laughs> I feel it could have been interesting, like if he had started choking her out. And so it was like a race between yeah. could she soak out Skye's life force faster than he could choke the life out of her right like that's an interesting because l listen i don't care how immortal you are you got to breathe right right so right. i mean i don't know there's just some ways that it could be done and instead they were just like good enough just have him snap her neck because that works for everybody and it's like it doesn't really it doesn't it doesn't really work i mean i do like that he's the one who takes her out i like that yes. he says let me carry that you know let me yeah. do this for you like and and that he did love her and so him making that choice i think that him choosing to kill her i feel it for him i feel that choice for him but the rest of it between jaying and sky i'm just like nah. you know i didn't need jaying trying to kill sky she's evil 
She's already, you know, I've already right. seen how evil she is. And it doesn't really like what it should do for Sky. You know, this this horrible betrayal of the mother that she's been searching for her whole life. We've already kind of had that. Like she's already realized what Jai Ying is. So this moment doesn't give me any more of that. And it just feels like um sort of a a, a paint by colors conflict resolution as yeah. opposed to yeah. actually, you know, making use of the of the momentum that you've got there, you know? So then there's a moment of silence for Reina. Because we've already talked about it a little bit, but, you know, we've lost Raina and she's amazing and she deserved a better death if she was going to have a death. And I would actually much have preferred for her not to die. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm going to remain in silence because otherwise I know I will rant. It's so sad. It's because she's so fantastic. And I loved her from the beginning. She's great. Um, OK, so another thing that I love is, is my Fitzsimmons. Right? I don't you hate know? it. I don't it's hate so, it. Oh God! I just wish that you... they would do it better. I well, I I love it. I love all my Fitzsimmons. I love when he thanks her for making the sandwich, which reminds me, I need to make that sandwich. Chef Jonathan, you are listening to this episode, and this is <laughs> shameful that you have still not made me this sandwich. I will until you do it. Call it the sandwich. The sandwich. <laughs> Fulfill my sandwich, Jonathan. All right. When he makes you that sandwich, I want a video. We'll do it as a Patreon exclusive. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. Jonathan, call me. Maybe we can do a little little cooking show so you can show people how to do it. And And then then I'll eat it. As a Patreon exclusive. Yeah. Yes. Patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you can get in on that. We got to put that up. Okay, Jonathan, I need you to do this. So, okay, we've got the sandwich. Uh, that's a hashtag. Uh, everybody, you know, just use that. Um, at Knives and Fire for... Uh, for oh, my gosh. Flood his timeline. Jonathan. At Flood Knives and Fire. timeline with hashtag, hashtag sandwich. sandwich. Mm. <laughs> He's never going to forgive us for that, but that's okay. Oh, he'll um, love it. <laughs> All right. So back to Fitz and Simmons. She made him the sandwich. It's awesome. Um, at the end... I love this moment when she wants to talk to him before he goes on a mission. And he's like, this now? You want to talk about this now? Like all this time. And I'm with him on it. I'm like, okay, come on, Simmons. <laughs> this has been brewing up for a while, you know? Um, I love that whole thing. I, and to me, it's like one of my favorite parts. Whenever I have that scene, I watch it over two or three times. He goes on the mission. He's about to talk to her. Then Colson calls him out. And it's just, it's so wonderful. And then, of course, Fitz on the mission, which I love. I love Fitz figuring out, you know, how to trap Gordon. And then Max, like, why didn't I think of that? He's like, you've been busy and you're not a quantum physicist. <laughs> I loved that bit. That line was good. <laughs> and then when Gordon's like, I'm trapped in here, that's not possible. What did you do? And he goes, science, biatch. Which, biatch is a word that had a very specific moment in time and, you know, is not right. like. No one can really say biatch anymore. It's just not a, it's, it's a bad look on everybody. You know? Fitz is literally too young yes. to be aware of the album on which that was originated. <laughs> it was 1995. If his parents were letting him listen to the chronic, it is unacceptable. My parents didn't know I was, so they shouldn't oh, yes. have been listening, letting me listen. But yes, it's certainly past its moment. Yeah, it's past its moment. Definitely. Um, but it was it's cute, though, when he does it. And I love his like geeky, nerdy joy at figuring out that problem. Like here we have this murderous teleporting guy, you know, and he's and just it, like, 
And it was a good setup, too. It was like, you yes. figured out a way to stop him from teleporting completely. And it was like, well, now my news sounds bad. I know. You know? But he was able <laughs> was to trap good. him in it the was room, good. which was really, really good. And, of course, we've seen that before because Jiang had a room that would do that with Gordon when he first arrived. It's true. That's right. You yeah. know? So, I mean, he had that ability to, like, or she had that ability to control those powers at that point. So, apparently, there is some kind of scientific, you know, what's it behind it. But, um, but it was really fun. It was fun to see Fitz do that. We have that moment where he's got the lead pipe and then suddenly he looks down at it and you're thinking oh no Fitz has been stabbed by his own lead pipe I don't know how that would have happened anyway but um but Gordon just materialized around the lead pipe and I was like well I mean because it wasn't that that Fitz was moving the the pipe and then he material like he materialized around it mm-hmm. and you would think that he would have learned how to avoid that kind of thing by now but I guess he's you know so thrown off by not being able to leave the room that maybe that's what did it I don't love it but I'm going to backfill it because yes. they mention how his senses, whatever senses he has, are also based on the same kind of quantum entanglement that let him teleport. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine that he's not in, you know, like it's the the sighted person's version of strobing lights or whatever. Uh-huh. You know, okay. uh-huh. um, it would be nice if somebody had said that out loud or or mentioned it as a possibility or, you know, right. put that gun on the up on the mantle before we pulled it down and shot him with it. But um Hi, writers. That's your Chekhov's gun joke for this episode of Listen Up, A-Holes. Um, you know, that would have been nice, but I guess when would we do it? I mean, you know, I don't know. It's it's, it's all. But I buy it. I buy it yeah. enough. I like the fact that it happens better than the fact that they shot it so that we wondered if... So we if wondered if he it got was stabbed. Fitz, what? Who had gotten uh, yeah. stabbed? Yeah, they they did kind of play with us a little bit on that, but it's it's a really nice Fitz moment. And then of course, you know, at the end we get the Fitzsimmons coda, right? You know, to set us up for season three. They make a date, right? He asks her to dinner. They're you know getting all ready to like finally do this thing. She gets swallowed up by a liquid rock because of the Whedon <laughs> rule. If two people are in love and about to be happy, they are not about to be happy. Take it away. <laughs> That's fantastic. You know? Yeah. But the thing that was funny, and I don't know if this is just me, but The Rock, when it was done swallowing Simmons, the way that they did the sound design on that felt like they were building up to a burp sound. Yeah. And I know they wouldn't do it because it would be too cartoonish. Um, but it felt like they were setting that up. Am I the only one who like anticipates a burp at the end of that? Um, I didn't. But okay, as soon good. as you said it, I was like, yeah, I get that. I get that. <laughs> So, uh, so that's our end of Fitzsimmons um, for the season, and uh, and I kind of, you know, as, as horrible as the Whedon rule is, I kind of dig it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a place on my shit Whedon does that annoys me bingo card, but it works here. It works here. <laughs> well, I okay, I dig it because I know I know where it's going. Oh, so, yeah. cheating! I see. Uh, yes, it's cheating. I hated it in the moment. I was very angry at the end of season two because I was watching these. I don't watch things live week to week. I generally don't. A show has to really have me, you know, in order for me to do that. I wait and I binge. Um, and uh, at the end of season two, when I knew I had to wait for the rest of this, I was like, no, I was furious. And it's the whole Whedon thing that is very annoying that, like, if anybody's going to be happy, if you're shipping anything and they get together, you know, within 30 seconds, something awful is going to happen to one of them <laughs> and they're going to be separated and it sucks. Um, but uh, but I really do actually like this. And I like the way that it's resolved when we get to season three, which is going to be a while because we got a lot of a lot of other MCU stuff that we're going to be doing here. Um, it's it's uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to talking about that with you. Definitely. 
So another love story, I guess you could call it a love story, a weird, twisted, obsessive Whoa, thing. whoa, whoa. It's yes. possibly our most well-fleshed out love story, frankly. Do you think Warden Agent 33? Yes. You buy them as a love story? Oh, they're a complete mess, but yeah. Oh, God. I don't know. I don't. It doesn't work for me in a million ways. And part of it is because Ward is clearly a sociopath and sociopaths cannot love. Okay, listen, I don't want to spend the time on Warden Agent 33. I want Uh, them not uh, part uh, of this season. They're not uh, necessary. uh, 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 uh. But they're here. And at least they did. They built the story, I guess, with the two of them. But I find it all to be really gross. And Ward is kind of our skeleton key bad guy. Like, got a plot hole that needs a bad guy in it? You know, just put Ward on it. And there he is. You know, he just kind of is like our, our, our bad Bad guy spackle, you know, yeah. for the whole thing. Um, and uh, and I actually I do feel bad for Agent 33 because yes. she went through all of this mind messing with Hydra, then fell into Ward's hands immediately after Whitehall is killed. You know, so she's super vulnerable. She doesn't know who to believe. She doesn't know what to do. Her mind is not her own. Now she's just gone off the deep end. And you know what? Like, I sympathize with her. Like, and all, not to mention, like, her, her entire sense of identity, you know, because she lost her face while she was under Whitehall's control. Um, she doesn't know who she is. She picks up Ward, you know, like a bad habit, uh, <laughs> right at the worst time. You like know? a venereal disease. Seriously, like a venereal disease. Absolutely. You know, and so she's just had, like, the worst luck. And when she dies, though, I'm like, okay i like i don't care i don't miss her it's not like reina where i'm like oh no you know i mean this like fine just get agent 33 out because everything with her is such a mess yeah i mean i do feel bad for her because of her arc you know yes but she and ward really are in a in a season filled with fat that could be cut they are the fattiest fat that can go yeah. Um, which no, is really also are. why it's weird to me that they put the most time and effort into their relationship. Like, I buy them more than I buy Bobby and Hunter. I buy them. Yeah, they're less informed. We actually do see yes. this relationship build rather than are just told that this is the great love of all time. Yes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so it's like simultaneously, it can just see itself out. Yeah. But it's also the best put together love story on this show. What? <laughs> I I would disagree with that. I think that Fitzsimmons is better, but still. Eh. But I, I understand. They should put some time into that is what I'm saying. It's the least informed. Third season. You know? Third yes. season is when I will believe Fitz and Simmons. I have yes. I predict Oh baby, you will. All right. Um <laughs> all right. So I love I love this whole thing though with May going with Hunter is like, oh, d- is killing Ward part of this? I'm in. Yeah. You know? And then when he's like, Don't worry about May, I'll take care of her. I owe her that. Like he just is absolutely wanting to kill her. And I kind of love that they they have this need to like destroy each other. Yeah. And May, of That's course, good will nemesis shit. It is. It's good nemesis shit. And I actually really like it. Um, And but then, you know, we have this like weird thing like he grabs it ends up being agent 33 because may has tricked her into putting on her may face. You know, Um, (laughs) she comes around a corner and he just grabs her and shoots her three times in the gut. You know, without the fight. And the thing is, is that like the fighting seems to me to be like Ward's favorite part. So I kind of don't believe that he would just grab her and shoot her without a moment's hesitation, especially considering that his girlfriend can sometimes, you know, look like May. I believe this 100%. Okay, great. The reason I do is because Ward is practical in his madness, okay? Last time he fought May, she she beat nine shades of shit out of him. All right, you know what? 
Fair enough. <laughs> and Fair what, enough. Living is the best revenge, right? Forget yeah. living well. Just yes. living. So step around the corner, shoot her a few times in the gut, and go. I mean, here's your weird factoid for the moment. Gut wounds, you got a minute? You know? Yeah. And so he could stand there and go, blah, ha, ha, at her for right. a minute. And then leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's got he's to book it. They're on a time right, crunch. So, right. Yeah. But I mean, and there ends your life, may, blah, ha, ha, leave. And she's done, right. you know. Uh, so I buy it. It's, it feels yeah. like a ward move to me because he he knows the score. Like last time he lost. Okay. All right. You brought me over. You brought me over. <laughs> in context, in, in full context of his, his conflicts with May. Yeah, I get that. Um, but I do love, though like angry bitter ward in the bar yeah. the bartender says she walk out on you and he looks at her she, goes, she drowned when her lungs filled up with blood you know? beautiful <laughs> and i love that and then ward wants a team you know and that was one of the things like earlier you know when he was working with the team again he's like i miss this i miss the team this is, i'm mostly i'm like regret that i killed this you know <laughs> and then he wants to build a new team evil team of evil yeah i kind of dig it i kind of dig it as a setup for you know warden season three i uh have heard everything that i need to hear from hydra at this point in the mcu <laughs> So yes. the idea that it's next low rant head that's going to grow is Ward <laughs> is kind of like just desserts. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, but, you know, back to May a little bit. Um, there's this quick moment like May and maybe I missed something. Maybe I'm not understanding. But she walks in. She knows 33 is there. She knows 33 has May face. So she puts this this message out, you know, that says, oh, you know, if you see my face, then, you know, stand down. Right. Yeah. To set up 33 so that May. So 33 would put on May face. And then when she shuts off the thing, the guy's like, well, I'm the only other guy here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that. So is she does she predict that Ward is going to instantly kill 33 and she, she can just have them take each other out? Is that what he what she thinks is going to happen? I don't think so. I think okay. that she gave a very specific location so that she would know where 33 was going. I don't think it was about putting okay. on the May disguise. I think it was about May sending her to a place in this giant maze okay. so that May could take care of her. Okay. All right. Because I was like, does she, because it's it's awesome how she puts on Mayface and then, you know, Ward ends up killing her. Like, it's a nice turn, I think, you know, yeah. it's a nice yeah. flip. Um, but it's really weird. But I mean, aside from this, like in all of this stuff that's going on, May is pretty much just a moving piece of kick-ass on the chessboard of kick-ass, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, but then we have this whole insertion, like we had a little bit with her and Andrew throughout the season, you know, we have that. Colson had been consulting with Andrew. We have the flashback to Bahrain when she was married to Andrew and they were all happy and they were going to have a baby and there was all of that stuff. And then she had the trauma of Bahrain and just shut down all of that. Um, you know, then so we have her call Andrew, you know, um, this moment before everything goes down, basically to say shit is bad. And if I don't come back, I just want to know that I heard your voice again, you know, um, and they build up. And again, it, it feels like I mean, they were married and everything, but it also feels like an informed thing that suddenly May is having these romantic feelings about her ex-husband. Um, and then at the end, you know, we have May is going on vacation and she's packing up her stuff and then she goes back in for her gun. And I get it. <laughs> I'm like that with my phone. Right. You know, there are some things with which you cannot be separated. Um, 
Um, and uh, and so I kind of like I I like seeing this side of May, but I feel like it is suddenly wedged in, and we haven't really given it any space to breathe. I get that. I mean. I'm on record here as saying season two is overstuffed with stuff I don't care as much about. Yes. And, that, and, that, mm-hmm. and that really, I don't understand why they wanted us to care about, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just my personal preferences. I'm really confused about some of their choices. Mm-hmm. I feel like if we weren't getting so much stuff thrown at us, that this would actually work pretty well. Yeah. Um, mostly because May is so understated, right? Yes. That we don't. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons Bahrain flashback was kind of egregious. It's like mm-hmm. we don't need to camp here. You know, yeah. her being upset that Colson was talking to Andrew showed us that there's some unresolved stuff there. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like that's about right for May. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. that phone call. And he says, I haven't had one of these since Bahrain. And I'm like, ah, if we hadn't belabored fucking Bahrain, that would be <laughs> fraught with meaning, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. And and so, I, yeah, I, I get you, but I actually, I actually think it's about right. It's just mm-hmm. we had to kind of sift it out of a bunch of other stuff we cared a lot less about. Yeah. There's so much other stuff going on that it feels crowded. You know, and it it feels a little sudden to me, you know, in these last couple of episodes that we're building that up, you know. But May May rethinking some of her life choices this season actually makes a lot of sense to me. Like, if you can just focus on the May parts of the episode, you're like, yep, yep, yep. The scans. There you go. (laughs) You know, yeah, to me, works for me. Yeah. All right. So Bobby is another thing. Like Bobby, I have been somewhat lukewarm about, you know, throughout the run. Like she's okay. You know, I don't mind her. Um, but she's not that great. But actually in this, the, first of all, the torture stuff and the things they did to her, I can't talk about that. I'm just not going to, it's rough. It's pretty rough. It's, it's really, really rough. And then when he smashes her leg and you hear that crunch, like, you know, somebody, somebody cracked a chicken bone to make that sound and it was terrible. (laughs) That was some very fresh celery, Mr. Foley. Oh God. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, so, but I actually like, she's so tough. They capture her, they beat her, they torture her, and she is just not going to give up anything. And then she says, if you torture me enough that I tell you I'm sorry, know that I don't mean it. So that even if she does break, you know, and she's so badass. And then in that last moment, she's been tortured. She's, you know, tied to this chair. She has to watch, you know, Hunter get shot in the head and she takes the fucking bullet for him. Like, it's... So, oh God. And then when he finds her, like, I mean, the thing with Bobby and Hunter, yeah, it's been predominantly informed, you know, all of this has been really super informed as opposed to shown and demonstrated for us in this moment though. Like, I feel like that's a demonstration when he sees her and gets her and she's been shot and he's like, you know, I feel what he's going through. So like at this point, I actually do. The performances are really good. The choices that they make, I think are really good. And so while this whole sidecar, you know, on this wobbly motorcycle of a finale, (laughs) you know, um, feels a little bit, you know, off on one wheel. um, I think that in and of itself, it works pretty well. I mean, how'd you feel about that? I, I have a lot of complicated feelings about Bobby in this episode or these yeah. batch of episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that Bobby is the biggest example of something that they are doing here mm-hmm. where we rehabilitate a bunch of backstabbing assholes by making them feel pain in front of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is frankly pretty fucking cheap i don't mm-hmm. i mean again, I'm kind of on record as thinking that these rehabilitations happen too fast. 
Yeah. All mm-hmm. things considered. Well, but also Bobby was portrayed as the as the good guy the whole time. I mean, she was the one who was like, I'm really sorry about this, but you have to understand this is where we were coming from. And she's trying to work with everybody and she's coming. So she was never really portrayed as a backstabbing asshole. Although uh, technically, yeah, she, she was. I mean, no, but they did. They never let her have the consequence of that. She always was the good guy. She always was treated as though she was the good guy. Nobody was really even mad at her. That just much Hunter when it happened, yeah. And we but have I mean, not like, cared about Hunter until I mean, Lar- I mean, I know I you care like Hunter. about Hunter. I know. I know. <laughs> so you, you and uh, you and Jed, apparently, yes. you know, yes. whatever. Yes. Uh, no. So I don't. So I really like her being so badass. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. but I feel like her possible most badass moment is sacrificed on the altar of rehabilitating her as a character. Sure. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. what I what I think actually is based upon what we have seen of Bobby. OK. Yeah. I think the most awesome possible thing for her and, and believable in a lot of ways thing for her would have been for her to get loose and fucking wreck Warden 33 and walk away putting sunglasses on while the warehouse right. explodes behind her. <laughs> That is what should yeah. have happened. Yeah. yeah. We don't need a rescue. Fuck Hunter and him, and him taking and and her taking a bullet for him. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a good moment, but I'd rather yeah. have her be fucking Mockingbird on screen right. than take a bullet for right. Hunter. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that. I can definitely see that. And I mean, the thing is, like, I I feel like in the story itself we like the writers have never held her responsible. They've always portrayed her as a good guy, just doing the best she can, even during all of that betrayal, even during everything that happened with Gonzalez. So I feel like we're not, they're not actively trying to rehabilitate her because they never saw her. The writers, I think never saw her as having done a bad thing. You know, it was completely interesting. That's interesting Mm -hmm. because, because Hunter, who is supposed to be our more sympathetic character here, as he was betrayed, not betraying, does hold her responsible He's the only one. And well, I mean, yes and no. So this is the difference in Watchers, right? I have mm-hmm. actually been more annoyed at her because she's walked this line. Like she's lukewarm, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. be hot or cold. Yeah. Uh, like either own your betrayal or say we really shouldn't have done this. Right. By, uh, hashtag team Colson, whatever. Mm-hmm. But this like walking the line makes her worse to me. Like, well, she never commit. seems to feel bad. Right. Like she doesn't seem to feel guilty. She's like, I did what I did and I stand by it. And I think it's the right choice, you know. And so I don't feel like we ever really we ever yeah. really have her, you know, have consequence for that. And then this, um, you know, this tormented love story of she'll take a bullet for him and he, you know, rushes to save her while everything else is going on. That's what he's going to do. He's going to save her. You know, um, I, I, yeah, I can see like where that doesn't work in the greater context, you know, of the whole thing and the moment itself. I I like it. And for me, it makes me like her more. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm poised to like Bobby. I just, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I loved her at the beginning, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I just would rather, I would just rather see her be awesome and competent. Mm hmm. Plus, plus Warden 33 need a fucking beating and Bobby giving it to them is probably second best after Mayor Sky doing it. So I also like the idea of kidnapping Bobby was a very, very bad idea. You know, like I like the idea of them being able to do that. You know, There, Um, there is there is this spectacular moment in a in a Batman story of a few years ago where he and a bunch of his friends who have sidekicks, the sidekicks get 
kidnapped. And the villain mm-hmm. is like on the on the microphone going, we have your children, advantage evil. And Batman's <sighs> just like, that ain't going to go the way you think it's going to go. <laughs> and he's right. And it would be so amazing for Bobby to be that person on Agents oh, of God. S.H.I.E.L.D. And what would be really funny, too, is if as the warehouse is burning behind her and she manages to pick up a pair of sunglasses, that's when May and Hunter land ready to kick ass and rescue her. And then they're like, oh, I guess you just need a ride. Right. (laughs) Right. Okay, now I'm completely convinced that would have been the much, much better ending. Just needles still in a couple of her fingers. And she's and we saw Ward put take his sunglasses off and put them in his pocket. So we know they're his. Oh my God, that would have been awesome. And she's oh just like, get, I mean, I even had this moment. I mean, this is my little fanfic, but I even had yeah. this moment when it looked like she was going to lose and I thought she might still win that I yeah. want to, I know she's not going to, cause I know they never call her mockingbird, but there was a moment mm-hmm. when she was like, I'm not fucking ward. I'm not your cavalry. You've mm-hmm. bitten off more than you can chew. I'm <sighs> mockingbird. And then just beat the <laughs> shit out of them. That's what I want. <laughs> that actually would have been fantastic. And now, now I'm wishing that that was what, what happened. I want uh, like May and Hunter all ready and all ready to like kick ass and take names. And they land and they're like, okay, so you need to ride back. Just silence as they watch the place burn. Yeah. And then you need a ride then. <laughs> and then that's it. Just like anybody got a cigarette? No. That would have been really Okay, fun. let's go. All right. All right, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. All right. So another thing that I love because I love this guy. I love Mac. And I have to say, this is something that I think pays off like only okay, after you've watched all of it. And it's not a real spoiler. But when Mac pulls the axe off the wall. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm, I'm <laughs> interested in seeing thing. what you mean when you say that's a thing. I, I'm, yeah. I'm interested. Uh, eventually we're gonna we're gonna talk about it but eventually like the the mac and the axe and the the whole thing like it's just it's so it's an iconic thing for him is the axe and how he works with an axe um so it's wonderful like i love him in this whole thing i love where he's in i'm in a crackhead's first ask questions later frame of mind when he hits lincoln you know and hitting lincoln is never a bad idea always Always knock lincoln out always Always. hit lincoln always hit lincoln should be absolutely the one your newest chipperish t-shirt yes always exactly hit lincoln. always hit lincoln um and i do love this moment too where, where gordon shows up in the room and he's sitting there with the axe on his lap and he goes it's gordon right and he goes and you are and he goes i'm the guy that kills gordon and i love that line i love mac that line is amazing it's a little too much line considering how things actually go Okay, yes. So actually, it fits accidental. Gordon essentially commits suicide by fits. <laughs> accidental you know? suicide by fits. Accidental yeah. <laughs> suicide by fits. So I mean, like I understand, but the line oh, the line's itself amazing. is brilliant, and the way he delivers that line is amazing. Henry Simmons is one of my favorite people ever. That's the actor who plays Mac. Um, and when he chops off Coulson's arm. He is such serious goddamn business. I love this guy so much. And I only love him more every time he's on screen. (laughs) I want to come back to loving him. I'm excited for the day. He's still a betraying yeah. asshole as far as you I'm just concerned. Gotta, you so. just got to forgive it. You just got to let it go because there's never going to be any consequence okay. for that. I mean, like, I mean as know. soon as we stop talking about, not you and I, like as yes. soon as Agents yes. of S.H.I.E.L.D. stops referring stops. to anything that happened this season. Exactly. We'll just kind of forget that. But no, Mac is kick-ass and awesome, and I love him. <laughs> I mean, because you know I loved him back in the day when he was, like, yes. rehabbing fits and all yep. that stuff. So, you know. Yeah. No, and that's what I love, too. I love that he is 
this like or example of masculinity like he's big and he's strong and he's muscled and he can beat the hell out of anybody but he's also emotionally connected and he can have really intimate emotional connections with other men without it necessarily yeah. being like some kind of questioning of his masculinity because if you if you have intimate emotional relationships with other men somehow that you know takes down his masculinity it doesn't like the way they represent masculinity and mac is so fantastic and i absolutely i love it i love that he's balanced he's not muscle he's not dumb he's capable and he's emotionally connected and i'm here for mac I yes love him. i want to do it so come on season three that's that's Mac. That's Mac. Um, all right. So before we like wrap all of this up, there is one thing and we've been kind of hinting at it all throughout is that the one thematic thing that runs through this whole season is the role of trauma. Yes. And the ways in which that it affects people. We have so many of our characters recovering from various traumas and traumatic experiences. I mean, we've got, of course, Cal. Right. You know, he is basically entirely defined and informed by his trauma. Mm -hmm. We have Jai Ying, who had a similar trauma, although she personally experienced, you know, being torn apart into pieces, you know, um, and then and then became this, you know, evil thing that she becomes. Um, Agent 33 and the results of her trauma and everything she's been through. So traumatized that she will fall in love with Ward. So, I mean, that's <laughs> seriously bad. Um, and Ward to a certain extent, because we're talking about him and his like need for closure and how he, you know, met with his family and, and you know, finished all that and, and all of that stuff that he did and the trauma that he went through. And when he, you know, at the beginning of the season, when he was, you know, locked up in the basement and you could see this damage you know, roiling within him. He was so desperate and he was just trying to like grab onto Sky in any way that he could. Um, and, you know, processing his trauma, all of the stuff that he did, you know, processing his trauma, of course, by murdering his family, a big chunk of his family, that was part of it. Um, all of these things together, you know, we've got May processing her trauma from Bahrain, you know, everything that went on there um, and working her way through all of that stuff. We've got Fitz, you know, because he had a traumatic brain injury. He was, you know, war tried to kill him. Um, Simmons processing her trauma with that where she wants to kill Ward and she's going to try to kill Ward you know and the difference between Fitz and Simmons like Fitz goes after Ward and he's like yeah and they had to hold me back like he was ever going to actually be right. able to do any damage very to performative you know yeah but Simmons goes after him you know, with a splinter bomb, like she ended up killing Bakshi by accident, but she meant to disintegrate Ward and would have done it without thinking twice, you know? Um, so we've got the role of all this trauma in in people's experiences and, and the ways in which it it changes who you are. I mean, you look at, I mean, I, I believe like all the Bahrain flashbacks and everything, like for me, way too much. I didn't enjoy it, you know, um, but we do see who May was yes. before Bahrain yeah. and then who she is after Bahrain and how much she has shut down because of that trauma. And actually as a, the whole season together as a treatise, on how people deal with trauma and what trauma does to people, I think is really interesting considering the amount of trauma that S.H.I.E.L.D. itself inflicts. Yes. Ooh. You know? Yeah. Both within so and without. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because a lot of this, I mean, you look at the people like when Cal was getting all these people who had been on the index, mm -hmm. you know, and whatever the hell they did to... Um, to uh, Drea DiMatteo, you know, that character. Yeah. Um, like with, with the with the metal nail thing like she I don't even know what the hell was going on with her. Um, but like 
all this trauma, the guy who couldn't speak and had to have like the, the physical leather mask, the horrifying, the body horror of that yeah. is just terrible. You know, there was actually a lot of body horror in that episode. Um, so I, I find that really interesting, kind of this whole, it feels like a whole meditation on trauma, but I'm not sure, first of all, that it was deliberate. <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure that it was it was really a discussion of trauma more than a trauma is why. Right? You know, trauma is why yes. Cal is this. Trauma is why Jai Ying is this. Trauma is why May is this. I would say that as far as processing trauma goes, May probably is the character that did the most of that. You know, and on kind screen? of worked her yeah, way through. Definitely it. on screen. A little bit. A yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. What do you think about all this? I think that if if we had to pin the creators, I think I agree with you that it's largely accidental or incidental. I think just just looking at how the season plays out, uh-huh. if we had to pin them down, I I think that they would say these are identity questions. Yeah, like who are you? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have a shield collective yes. identity question. You know, that's why I say that. That's part of it, and also the Inhumans, like. Who right, are we? Absolutely. And we're and defined. Sky. And Sky. I mean, yeah, yeah. Sky is a huge identity story, especially going to the point where she transforms not just physically, but who she is. She right. goes from Sky no name change to Daisy Johnson. Genetic yeah. change, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think if we pinned them down, they would say yeah. it's an identity story. But it is really interesting how many of these identities are. Uh, shaped by either overcoming or not overcoming your trauma. Or I guess you mm-hmm. could say it's always overcoming, but like, did you do it in a healthy way or less so? Well, I think, I don't know that you overcome trauma. I think you live with trauma. Yes. Trauma transforms That's what you better. are. Like, yes. like, regardless of, you know, whether it's physical trauma or emotional trauma, it changes you and you will never be the same again. Once you've gone through a traumatic event, you are fundamentally changed by that. And the acceptance of that and how you move forward with that again. Yeah. The question is, do you move forward in a healthier way? Do you process it and make it part of you? Or do you constantly hold it in your hand and are therefore kind of debilitated by it because you will not put it down, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, which I think is what we see with Ward. Ward holds that weight in one hand all the time and is always kind of like less of an effective person in anything that he does because of that. Yeah. You know? I think Cal um, and I also, think also he's, similarly. Yeah, exactly. Yes, absolutely with Cal. Um, and so I think that that's really, that's really interesting. Do you hold it outside of yourself and fight with it constantly or do you, like May, integrate it, accept it and work with it? You know, which interestingly um, enough, yeah. by the end may not be it is a healthier way, but it may not yeah. be the healthiest way. Right. Yeah. Because by mm-hmm. the end, she's reevaluating that. Like, yeah, this yeah. worked. But did it work as well as I would prefer it to work? And I think right. you, you even had Cal doing that before Tahiti mm-hmm. where he was like, yes. I wish that I had not done the things that I did because of losing you. Because now I'm going to now that I've had you, I'm going to lose you again forever, you know. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's really it's really interesting. And yeah, yeah, I I love all of that. And and it's very worthwhile, I think, Mm -hmm. that a show that's part of a superhero universe leverages this question, even the question of trauma, which they probably didn't mean to do exactly. Yeah. But they Mm -hmm. leverage it in terms of identity because that's so much a superhero question. I mean, we say that a lot in origin stories, but honestly, yeah. even in the serialized stuff that goes on a long time, that's that becomes the question. Like Spider-Man quits all the time, but never forever. 
You know, mm-hmm. uh, Batman yeah. never quits. Is that a good idea? You know, <laughs> right. it's just, the, you know, the how and the how and the why mm-hmm. of who they choose to be in response to their their superhero idea. It's so on the label with an actual separate identity, which I think is why yeah. Sky is really interesting as, you know, sort of the, you know, the uh, the thesis statement of that whole thing. She she yes. she changes the most physically Mm-hmm. And 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 emotionally in the most healthy way. Yeah. And then integrates that by becoming essentially a whole other like rebranding herself, not rebrand, renaming herself, owning yeah. her different identity instead yeah. of it owning yeah. her. Well, she transforms. Yes. You know, yeah, she's not holding on to who she was. She's accepting that she is just different now. And of course, that's a big thing for Fitz, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fitz is the one who gives her that whole talk. You know, you're just different. Yes. Like, that's it. You're just different. And accepting that. So actually, I think for something that I feel like trauma is brought in here um, for the purposes of this is why, you know, Mm -hmm. trauma is Mm -hmm. why. um, And also for purposes of motivation for characters. But in in reality, there actually is a fair amount of, of kind of philosophical discussion about when you have changed. You know, when when something has happened to you that has fundamentally changed who you are and how you interact with the world, you know, do you fight it? Do you hide it? You know, which is what they tried to do with Sky in the beginning. Um, Fitz has fundamentally been changed by the events of what Ward did to them, throwing them at the bottom of the ocean last season. Right. Fundamentally changed. Everything about his identity has changed. And he struggled with that. But he was able to incorporate it into who he was and accept it you know, and, and then move from there into who, who new Fitz is, you know, Mm -hmm. and Sky was able to do that too. But I mean, Fitz's whole talk about you're just different now, I think is actually a really interesting, you know, like discussion space for what trauma does. Um, So whether they meant to do it for people who didn't mean to do it, I think you're right. I think that I don't think they meant to do it. But we have it coming up so much and so much, so much in this season um, that I think accidentally they sort of fell backwards into really interesting thematic discussion. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's it's very it's very good. In fact, if they had realized that that's what they were doing and kind of focused on that instead of the the very specific identity half of that, I think that we would have lost some of the fat that we haven't loved this season, you know? Yeah. And that's what, you know, understanding um, a theme, like when I teach writers, I tell them not to worry about theme until they get to revision, right? Yes, yeah. Don't, because otherwise it'll hijack your story and you'll start making choices that are specifically about theme. But once you're in revision, you've written your story, you can go back and you can take the stuff that doesn't speak to that theme and kind of angle it toward it or cut it out or whatever. And you can make it work better all together. But when you are writing in the moment like this, you know, the the season is a whole narrative unit in and of itself. You don't know what it's about until you get to the end of that mm-hmm. narrative unit. But there is no time to write all the episodes, look at them, then go back and rework them for theme. You're you're doing this. You're laying track as the train is coming, you know? Yes. Um, so it's one of those things that you can't really do. And so for something that didn't offer that opportunity, I think in some ways, whether they intended to or not, they really did do an interesting meditation on this. I agree. I think it's really great. 
All right. So now we're moving into season three, which I think I think is my favorite of all the seasons of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Okay. Season three is like, you know, I've liked the show before that. Season three is when I was like, I love this show so much. Um, <laughs> so season three for me is really good. I'm hoping that you love it, too. But if not, that's okay. That's okay. I will love it enough for both of us. Um, but here we have some setups, you know, for what's going to be going on in season three. We have the Terrigen crystals getting into the water, into the fish, into the fish pills. And so I think that you can anticipate um, some of the things that may possibly stem from that. Will there perhaps be a rise in superpowered people? I don't know, Joshua. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Um, We've also got the mystery of the liquid rock that swallowed Simmons. And one of the things that I was interested in... I didn't know if this was something that had existed in the the Marvel comics. And based on the fact that you didn't talk about it in Four Color Facts, I'm guessing this is a new thing. But I'm curious if there's anything in Marvel DNA that kind of is a match for this or if this is something wholly new that we're doing. I, am, I do not have any theories currently. Okay. And mm-hmm. I am resisting thinking about it too much. The reason that I'm not thinking about too hard is they are so wildly divergent from any of the inhuman stuff that I know from the comics. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It like because they could. Well, at the time they were planning on doing a movie about the inhumans that I think of as the inhumans, <laughs> you know, and then it became a TV show that we will watch drunkenly. But um, yes, mm-hmm. like that's the stuff that I know. And, and also, I'll say a lot of the inhuman stuff that happens in the comics happened in Fantastic Four books, which I love the Fantastic mm-hmm. Four as a concept, but I have not always like read them devotedly, you know. Yes. So mm-hmm. this is possibly a blank spot in my knowledge, but it also mm-hmm. might be that it's some really like obscure piece that they blew up into a bigger thing because they have to fill this new space for inhuman stuff that they created for the show. Yeah. So I'm kind mm-hmm. of just like, I'm leaving it out there. You know, mm-hmm. I will I will get to it. I'm also afraid to spoil myself. So it does, because I'll be honest, it tickles a couple of memory bank things, but nothing that yeah. I could, I would have had to go look some stuff up and I was afraid to ruin yeah. it for myself. So I'm letting it live, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's best. I think that's best. Yeah. And so I'm looking forward to the comic reading a-holes letting me know how wrong I am in the Twitter TL. Like <laughs> that they're going to be like, what did you not read this story? And then I will either instantly realize, oh, it's that thing, you know, yeah. um, mm-hmm. or 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 that won't happen. And it w- anyway, well, I'm excited to see. But it, it tickled a couple of things, but nothing that I would have been able to just like pull out of my pocket. And, and I was yeah, okay. I was afraid of falling into a. Uh, a a spoilage area so yes i'm letting no, it I can sit definitely understand that i was just curious oh, because no. i was waiting like i don't know if there's anything there and i was like oh i wonder if he's gonna pull anything up about the the liquid rock inhuman um, stuff is weird yeah. so i wouldn't be I, well, surprised if it yeah. is a thing that i'm just either not aware of or haven't thought mm-hmm. about in 20 years you know yeah right <laughs> all right so moving forward is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we didn't hit on today yeah i have kind of a question going or it's not one you have to answer because it's kind of spoilery but i will say that thematically to the mcu at large Mm -hmm. the idea that sky and colson are going to go off and create secret avengers Mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense for this show Mm-hmm. I also feel like it kind of, you know, kicks at the lower bricks in the Jenga tower that is the MCU world building. <laughs> right. 
I think at this point, we are seeing a separation between what Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We've had Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of, um, you know, we like the, the Theta Protocol thing, like which yes. was a stupid, you know, um, connection. Uh, you know, when S.H.I.E.L.D. fell in Winter Soldier, mm-hmm. we had that, you know, connect and everything. Um, we are seeing uh, the, the movie MCU separate, I think, a bit from the TV show so that they're not kind of tied together in this, you know, awkward three-legged race where they've got to be aware of each other for whatever it is that they're doing. I think they just try to stay into separate spaces. So I would say we're going to see more of that kind of like diverging between the two properties while still being in the same universe. I find that understandable, yes. but also disappointing Yeah, because I feel like the machine is big enough that if they gave a damn, they could still do it. Yeah, I think it's hard to... I imagine that the, um, the coordination... Absolutely. Would be difficult based on when things are happening and, you know, like when stories are being broken and, and to be able to break the TV show while the movies are being broken. And for, you know, people like breaking is, is when you take the story and figure out all the beats and what's happening, you know, like how, how all the pieces are moving around within a particular story. You know, you break it out, you break a TV show into all these different episodes, you know, and, and break the, the story when you figure out what the story beats are going to be. Um, so as the, um, the movies are being broken out into these various story beats with all of these considerations that they have to have of you know who can we get um you know who's available for these movies um you know what and all the different things that are happening within like the greater grander mcu and then you've got this you know agents of shield story which is a smaller scale generally when something happens in the mcu it happens in the whole world when something (laughs) happens in agents of shield although actually there's stuff that does kind of anyway it's all like it's on this like different this sort of separate space so most of the shield stories can kind of fly under the radar of the general mcu um and i think that they're trying to do that a little bit more um so it's uh it's it's a little bit awkward sometimes if you're trying to reconcile you know in, in the little uh the 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 books you know try to reconcile the books for for the greater mcu and then uh and then the tv show but basically they're kind of like humming alongside each other and trying not to look at each other too much because <laughs> i think it does i think it ends up with things like theta protocol you try to to incorporate stuff too much and they're they're two different worlds in a sense because every story is its own world right you know, the story yeah. of iron man 2 is different from the story of thor you know um or story world of thor even though they are in the same world they also have their own individual bubble you know world sure. bubbles yes. um so having all of that and that's part of like this expansive universe of storytelling that all is supposed to you know we're supposed to have guardians of the galaxy is supposed to exist in the same space as captain america the first avenger you know like all of this stuff is um is so broad as to encompass it all you know and then sometimes when those bubbles bump up against each other there's a weird friction That can be difficult. Yes. You are speaking to some of the stuff I love most about superhero universes, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. I think that's why it stands out for me here because it feels like a real thematic problem, right? Like Mm -hmm. we just had Tony Stark ruin the world by doing secret shit. Like they even talk about it in these episodes, you know, and, and uh, when Captain America was doing secret shit, it turned out to be a really bad idea and he drug shield down over it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mm-hmm. I, it's I get why they're doing it. And I and I don't necessarily think it's a bad idea. It's just like 
yeah, this is 100% the moment where everyone just stops even trying. I think so. And honestly, I think that's the better call. I really do. Because trying to keep all that stuff, I mean, trying to keep it connected is how we got Theta Protocol. I like. Mm, mm. I mean, okay, could they have done it better? Yes. But looking at the incredible like boulder all of these people are moving uphill (laughs) like for me to ask that they make everything consistent between all of these different world bubbles for me i'm i'm ready to let that go (laughs) i'd rather let it go than have it done badly fair enough i mean i get Mm -hmm. that i think my expectation of watching hundreds of monthly books do it Oh, sure. Better than this. Not perfectly, but better than this for decades probably gives me an unrealistic expectation. (laughs) I don't have that experience or expectation. I look at this and I'm amazed they're doing it as well as they are. But you've seen people do that. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's a different machine. When you're writing writing books and comic books, though, so much more of the control is available in fewer hands. Whereas we've got so many people doing so many different creative things in so many different spaces. Um, and some of it is, is arbitrary, you know, yes, like yeah. one of your stars has another commitment and then suddenly you've got to do this movie without that character there or whatever. Like there's so many different things involved in the television and movie production and so many more creative hands at work. If you've got, you know, a a writer and an illustrator, like, or even a team of writers and illustrators on one line, and then you've got a team on the other, they can talk to each other and coordinate, but being able to coordinate all this stuff at this level. Yeah. yeah, When you have comic book editors actually doing Mm -hmm. their jobs as, as editors of a superhero universe, like I need to put that mm-hmm. caveat because right. that's not every comic book editor ever, but that's that's part of their job, right? Like even if you have mm-hmm. a couple of hundred people working on these individual books, that's this handful of guys' job is to make sure that it all jives more or less. And yeah. yes, it is probably unrealistic for me to expect that same kind of thing from such a different creative machine across yeah. television and movies. I get mm-hmm. it. But it's also like, oh shit, Secret Avengers, you guys, that doesn't work. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and if there's if there's one if there was one person, you know, and I guess you could say Kevin Feig, but even so, like it's it's not. Like there's just so many people involved. There's so many creative decisions happening in so many different levels and God knows that the, you know, corporate machine you know, this Gordian knot of various <laughs> corporate interests that is Disney and Marvel and everything and Best Buy. I don't even know what the fuck they own now. Um, it's like everything, you know, um, and uh, like I, so all of it is so like pulled together and and all of these corporate like the idea that they're able to even get this stuff to to harmonize as well as they do to me is a miracle and well beyond my expectations. I'd rather them just not. I'd rather them just whistle past it yeah. and be like, whatever, we're not doing this. Um, which I think it, we're going to do more as as Ages of S.H.I.E.L.D. moves on. Well, what's interesting is I think that's what, this will be my final thought. I think that's what uh-huh. the Netflix series do. Yeah. Uh-huh. Is uh-huh. just really barely nod at the larger MCU. Right. And they create a much, much smaller world bubble. Yes. Like, you know, for for um, for Daredevil, it's it's this like three blocks of New York City. Somewhere between kitchen, a borough you know? and three blocks. It's misty. Yeah, but right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's when you when you make the world smaller, 
you can you can kind of curl up inside that yeah you know and and having a lot of those netflix shows which are all like various like new york city spaces you know um i think they may all you know be in that hell's kitchen kind of space but they're all kind of like you know interacting a little bit together um which is of course how we end up with the defenders um but uh, but yeah, no, I think that that's it. And this, this is what I find so fascinating. The the idea of all these different world bubbles existing within the same story universe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and yet tonally and, and, you know, the story scape and the scope of them are, are different. And I got to me, it's fascinating. I'm just beginning after doing this for, you know, how long we've been doing this, just beginning to wrap my mind around it. And I absolutely freaking love it. I think, I think that amazing. if we see a shift towards more cohesion in Disney plus shows, mm-hmm. I will not be mm-hmm. surprised. Yeah. And I will be yeah. very interested to watch that evolution. That is going to be really interesting. All right. So I have two little tiny, minor, minor things that I wanted to just throw in here because I love them. Um, well, one of them I love and the other one I'm like, hmm. um, but uh, Pat and Oswald, we have we open with Pat and Oswald in the black and the flashback at the beginning of Scars, you know, as the various Koenig brothers. And I just freaking love Pat and Oswald everywhere he shows up. Anytime he shows up, I love him. He delights me. Um, so that was really, really fun to see. Um, but the other thing that I thought was weird was the actual effect of the cocooning. Um, because when Trip and Raina and Sky were cocooned, right, the cocoon sort of like came over them like a mud bath, you know, and it just <laughs> covered them completely. But here, when when Beardy McGee cocoons, when they throw him in with the uh, with the other people on the ship, and she throws the the Terrigen mist in. Like, his beard is still outside the cocoon. I mean, it turns gray like the cocoon, but, like, all of his hair and his clothes, the clothes are actually outside the cocoon. When Gonzalez cocoons, he's still got his kick-ass Edward James almost uh, mustache, <laughs> right? And you, his glasses are on the outside, and his clothes are on the outside of the cocoon, but the cocoon has, like, a, a you know, a, a, a mass to it. It's all so weird. And it's the only time we do this. I will tell you, you know, no spoilers. I don't think this is a big spoiler. The effect of the cocooning as we see it happen later and as we've seen it like, you know, earlier in the season was it covers all of you, including your clothes. Like Sky's clothes were not on outside of her cocoon, you know? Yeah. Tripp's clothes were not on outside of his cocoon. The clothes and the hair on the outside of the cocoon cracked me up. <laughs> I did not understand it. It was the weirdest choice you could possibly have made. It was bizarre. When I saw the mustache hairs on the cocoon, I was like, wait a minute. And then Beardy McGee, of course, because he had that super big beard. I don't know what the I don't know what the character's name was. I never cared. Agent Beard. He was just one of the guys. Agent Beard. (laughs) Yeah. Um he was you know, I I just it baffled me. I'm like, why are his clothes, his glasses, and his mustache outside of the cocoon? It's a choice. It was hilarious, and I didn't understand it at all. So it was just something I wanted to bring up. I thought it was weird. I agree. It's very strange. All right. So, Joshua, tell me, for these three episodes ending season two of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and our time with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for a while, um, what was your favorite part? Um, The brief moment that I thought Bobby was going to stomp Warden 33 flat (laughs) and then walk out of the building while it blew up behind her. And if that's too cynical an answer, I actually really, really love the shot of Sky kicking a bunch of ginger ninjas multitudinous asses. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I like that. What about you, Lonnie? As though we didn't know. I I feel like I've I've managed to not telegraph this (laughs) very much. Such a secret. 
Exactly, Unlock the but bolt. it's Cal. It's Cal. It's Cal. The moment before, you know, pre-Tahiti when he's saying goodbye and he's saying, I imagined you perfect, but you're so much more interesting than that. Um, I love that so much. It's so touching. And I've loved Cal this whole season. I've loved Kyle McLaughlin in this role the whole season. It was an absolute delight. My favorite part of the whole season. And uh, and so I'm sad to see him go, um, but I'm glad he got a nice ending. I agree. The happy ending for Cal was really unexpected and I appreciated it a lot. I did, too, because even though he did all those terrible things, like, I don't know, he was so wonderful. And I just wanted to see him, you know, get something. And I think he's happy now taking care of dogs. And if Ward shows us anything, having your brain scrambled is not necessarily a non-punishment. Like, you don't remember it, but it's an effect. You're not you anymore, you know. So it still has a consequence even if it it's does. kind of an atypical consequence, it's not going to prison or whatever. And he's not dangerous anymore. You know, they made him not dangerous. And didn't so. let him work on your grandma. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> if you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. Lonnie is at Lonnie Diane Rich and I am at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is listen up, a-holes. Both Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions are entirely supported by listeners like you who will personally rip out Raina's little tainted rat heart. Or not. Up to you. Show your support by visiting our Patreon pages or by leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts. Links are in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We're done with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for a little while, and we'll be back next time with our discussion of Jessica Jones, Season 1, Episodes 1 and 2. Until then, we're the guys who kill Gordon by accident.